be sure to tell them Large Marge sent you. My name is Matthew Kroll. And that's what it's all about, interrupting someone's life and making them see what they took for granted. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically nine films. Oh my God. Actually, when I did the math, it's actually going to be 12 films we're going to talk about today. Did I do the assignment wrong? No, no. I, I, I just added things. I'm the worst substitute teacher in this classroom, which is that well, I'm just good like thing giving we have help work. then, yeah. because I don't want to just go through this with your planning. Uh, we are very fortunate to be joined by someone that uh, I've worked with before at MTV in the halls of MTV very briefly. But it was one of those chance meetings where I was like, you know what? This is a this is a movie guy. So uh, you might know him on the Internet uh, from MTV's movie coverage. He's he is. Is MTV's movie person, as well as hosting the Oscar, um, the Oscar coverage and a fantastic podcast, which I absolutely love and you should all subscribe to called Happy, Sad, Confused. Welcome to the show, Josh Horowitz. How are you? I give my own applause. This is so exciting, guys. You guys just scream professionalism from the booking process, from the intros. <laughs> to the fact that I'm in my closet. Everything about this. From the, I literally see Shahir's closet right, uh, right now. I am just blown away by every facet of this podcast. It can only go downhill. From exactly. Here. Thank, Thank you so you much for, for having me. Just, just wait till we get started. Josh, yes. uh, I, uh, I briefly worked with you on uh, some uh, – it was uh, the Fandom Awards, which is one of the myriad of shows that you've hosted yes. uh, over the years. And um, one of the, this is just sort of an interesting quality, which is that, uh, you know, like people on the internet will know you from the Untitled Josh Harwich show and, um, uh, and, and your podcast. And I think there's a fun kind of surface quality to it, which is that everyone loves being around you and every celebrity wants to talk to you. And, you know, you have more time with Tom Hiddleston than I think most people will ever have. Um, but when I got to suck on that internet, <laughs> <laughs> my claim to fame, I got Loki time. <laughs> but when I got talking to you, the thing that struck me and I was like, oh, we, I, I actually really enjoyed this was that you are actually uh, a pretty committed cinephile, which I'm not sure <laughs> as too many people know, but like I was, I was actually really struck by, oh, this guy's actually got a pretty deep knowledge of cinema more than, more than most people would probably think he does. I, I appreciate that. And it's funny. It's, it's often what I say when I talk to people about um, folks that have my kind of gig, yeah. right? Like doing the red carpets and doing interviews is like my greatest asset is my competition. Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily a genius cinephile or anything, mm -hmm. but a lot of the folks out there yeah. with all due respect or no due respect um, kind of just read from the card and kind of show up and, you know, flash their pearly whites. I am gifted with other <laughs> assets, maybe beyond great hair and skin. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, legitimately love and know pop culture, particularly movies. It's in my blood. It's what I um, was obsessed with, like you guys were and are. And um, it makes the job that much less of a job. And um, yeah, I'm glad that that came through in our brief experience uh, working together. But um, that's what I am. First and foremost, I'm a fan. And like I was like a crazy movie geek and I remain that to this day. And I, I'm very cognizant of like the lucky position I'm in, A, to like cover movies and see the stuff ahead of time. And then also to like share significant time with the actors and filmmakers that like, particularly the ones I grew up mm. worshiping. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I always say that people always ask me like, who, like who are the ones that you get starstruck by? Like I, you know, I curiously don't get to like starstruck by like the current movie stars, but it's like, 
when like Kurt Russell yeah. is sitting oh. in my office for an hour yeah. and like quoting Jack Burton to me, <laughs> like to my face, I'm like fucking melting inside and on the outside. So um, I'm glad again that, that comes through. It, 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 it's not a front. It's who I am. And, and hopefully that comes through in all my work. Yeah, it, it's very genuine. And, and I think that's also the reason why um, from uh, uh, just a pure enjoyment phase, I, I really do feel like the people talking to you, like I was listening to your Guillermo del Toro interview today, and I was like, he. I feel like that conversation could have gone on for a lot longer. And I feel like Guillermo's really excited to talk to you. <laughs> you know, like it was, yeah. uh, it's really fun to listen to. That's awesome. Thank you, man. I mean, that, that, yeah, that means everything. I mean, I, the, the stuff that I, I in particularly love are the people like Guillermo or, you know, Quentin Tarantino or Edgar Wright. It's like the guys that like, they know movies way obviously yeah. better than, than I do, but like they share that same DNA. They are, they are us that just happen to also have the crazy skills to be the greatest <laughs> filmmakers on the planet. And they, they talk the talk and love and see no like real delineation frankly between the fans and the critics and themselves like they they will shoot the shit with anybody that knows their stuff and um Guillermo definitely fits that bill and he's somebody that um I, I've been talking to probably for 12 15 years since I kind of started doing this and that's the other great thing about just like sticking around as long as I have is like you develop a history and a comfort with these folks and they know you know after the first two or three times oh this guy Knows his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Really they know you can walks hang. Walks the walk, talks. The, yeah. They, they, they can keep up with me to a degree. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. I mean, like, like you said, like, I mean, you guys could too. Like, any, anyone that, that hosts like a good movie podcast could hang with Guillermo del Toro for an hour, for maybe or five yeah, hours, or 10 hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, I, I think, yeah. We'd last oh. very short. <laughs> <laughs> Which, whoa, okay. Yeah. Uh, hey, hey, speak for yourself, man. Wait, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> fuck, 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 fuck. Um, no, I was going to say something I really uh, admire about your work, Josh, is. Um, and this, this is, is great, by the way. Let's just keep going back and forth on the things you love about and, my work. And I can't give specifics on air. I'm happy to do it after Ooh. the show. Okay. It's <laughs> more interesting. Okay. Your interviews have shown me people, sides of people, whom I thought on the surface level where I see them in other interviews or just general press junkets were cold. Like we're okay. not in, like we're not people that I would really want to talk to. And for yeah. for I mean, we, we've kind of listed the myriad of reasons of why, you know, we think that this is the case. But like you have this ability to have people show their best selves people i might add that i think don't often get the opportunity to connect on that level and that's something that i've always really dug like everyone just seems like they're having fun <laughs> um so i i don't know i just i that's that's one no, no, side I, of it that i appreciate no that's awesome because yeah like like i was just saying Frankly, anybody can talk to Guillermo del Toro. You put a microphone in front of him and say movies, and he will talk <laughs> brilliantly for the next hour. But the true mark of hopefully a good host or conversationalist is bringing out, yeah, the side of somebody that doesn't necessarily want to come out. And certainly, look, I, I have the folks that I – I'm smart enough now, again, having done this a while, that I avoid the folks that I know will – be crappy to me and crappy for the sure. audience, but I would would be lying if I said I didn't take a special delight in in um, cracking the tough ones. Right. And I, I've done that with a few people. And um, yeah, maybe off air we can compare notes and talk about what you're <laughs> talking I, about at all. And I'll and I'll tell you from my perspective um, sure. if I agree with you. I probably will. Yeah, I, I I didn't want to put you on the spot and say who was your favorite, but uh, but maybe we can find out later. Well, well I'm, I'm, later. No, actually, That's actually, not important. Well, no, no. I mean, who's I'll someone you've really enjoyed out. talking to recently? 
Well, uh, let me say one first that you were alluded to, alluding to, no, probably not the specific person, but one that sticks, sticks out at me when you were talking about kind of tough nuts to crack. Uh, for a while, I avoided um, Christoph Waltz mm, as, yeah. a, as an interview. He is a tough interview, and I've seen other people shrivel up uh, against mm-hmm. him. And like my, my joke about him, and it's not even a joke, is the way he generally, if you watch the, a lot of his interviews, um, he will respond to a question by questioning <laughs> the question, no matter how banal and basic it is. I think so, I'm for instance, now. so for instance, if you say something like, um, uh, you know, why did you choose to do this comedy? He'll just go back at you like, what, what is a comedy <laughs> in the end? Is is anything comedic or is it all forms of drama? <laughs> and you're like, well, just uh, go with me, buddy. Like, come on, you're, you were in uh, Horrible Bosses too. It's a comedy. It's not a drama. <laughs> um, but... I, and I reluctantly had him on the podcast. Like uh, his publicist really wanted him to come on, which was very flattering to me. But like, again, 45 minutes with somebody that I've seen be really tough in interviews. I was like, oh God, this is going to be a nightmare. And um, whether he was in a good mood that day, whether I overprepared and kind of like knew the ways into his deep, dark heart, it was a really good conversation. If you listen to that one, he he really opens up and it, it's like a, it's a, a genuine back and forth. And um, again, those are the ones I take the most the most pride in, yeah. Nice. Um, let's see. Once you were asking Shahir, uh, recent folks that I've that I've enjoyed the most. Guillermo was certainly one of them. Um, you know what? In the last year, I've had Steven Soderbergh on the podcast twice. I'm going to be talking about him a lot because your your discussions oh, with him uh, were are really op- uh, eye opening. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, like he's somebody that like intellectually is like on another plane and filmmaking wise is just so fascinating. And yeah, perhaps we, we will, since we're talking about first films, get into, into his work. But, um, uh, it's been it, that, that's like, again, a badge of honor to talk to somebody like that and have him come back like yeah. six months after the first, um, uh, appearance. Like he's somebody you can just go deep with because he's, he's conquered kind of every genre and is so, fascinating and, and and also just like a funny, interesting uh, individual that, um yeah, he's one that sticks out. I am trying to start a Schizopolis uh, fan club, but uh, <laughs> it's not going well so far. Um, I need to revisit that one. It's been a long time. I, I, yeah, I have yeah. it on DVD and I do watch it every now and again. Those those uh, first five movies of Soderbergh's are yeah. um, are such a delight. Like before Out of Sight? Like right before? Yeah, well, because like Out of Sight is mainstream. one of my favorite movies of all time. And sure. um, I just love seeing the journey he takes to get to out of sight because six yeah well we'll talk about six lies and videotape on this episode but uh yeah uh that that whole journey of his and then just the amount of reinvention that he's done in his entire career uh and i you know like again i just don't i i genuinely don't understand how he works like it doesn't i know he puts out a lot of movies but it doesn't make sense to me that someone could work could put out as much as he does Right. And then I, I don't know. Did you guys check out the recent, you know, he does that annual list. Yes, of all yes, the, I have that. The, the Which, um, he watched, he um, there was a movie on it. Uh, he watched Panic Room four times, which got me so excited. <laughs> I was like, because I love Panic Room. And I was like, yeah. why is he watching Panic Room so often? And then you want to like cross reference it. Like, is he making no sudden movement yeah. at, at that time? Like, is he like, what's he watching in reference to what he's doing? Yeah, yeah. I do yeah, the same yeah. thing. <laughs> um, well, m- 
One of the reasons I wanted to get you on was that there's a, there's something I've been wanting to talk about on uh, the podcast for a little while now. And I picked up your book, uh, The Mind of the Modern Movie Maker, um, over the holiday, the Christmas break. Uh, I, I went laugh because it's been uh, probably sold 26 copies, now 27, thanks to you. Yeah, I, uh, a vintage <laughs> uh, uh, collector's item. Yeah. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed re- uh, reading it uh, because you, Thank you, you. It, it's basically a series of interviews with filmmakers, but this was done in 2005. So it's really interesting to think about certain filmmakers at this point. For example, um, one that I was excited to read about was Michelle Gondry, who had just been coming off Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which I, from your intro to the book, is one, I, I think I would argue one of your favorite films or oh, yeah, uh, our yeah, favorite. Um, and then the the turn his career kind of takes around 2005 from there to here is really interesting because uh, at this point, I would have pitted him as one of the greatest filmmakers alive at that point. Totally agree. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's fascinating to see if for no other reason, that book is a fascinating snapshot of where people, Patty Jenkins is yeah. in the middle of like her post monster, like dry spell, yeah. like that last, that ended up lasting like what, 12 or 15 yeah. years before she like directed another movie. Um, Richard Kelly, yeah. you know, coming off Donnie of Darko. Uh, Southland. Oh no, coming off of Southland Tales. Yeah. He, he had just, he had just directed it, but he hadn't released it yet. Right. So yeah, just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. such a fascinating snapshot. And, and it actually got me thinking about the topic that I wanted to talk about, which was first films. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about first films is a little bit of a selfish reason, which is that I am in the process of developing my first, well, I, not developing, I'm producing my first feature. I was going to uh, say, Shia, are we just going to talk about your first that's, film? Is that so what we're guys, doing? Wait. Listen, I'm going to show you a pitch, Nick. <laughs> like I want your honest feedback. fine <laughs> filmmaker knows to make it all about promoting his own work. Good for you. I, I uh, So I'm working on my first feature, and I obviously, uh, one of the parts of working on your first feature is what I would probably call the Orson Welles syndrome, which is that we... You know, I think every filmmaker thinks about Citizen Kane when they're making their first movie. At some point, you just, even in just like in a nascent quality, you're just like, Jesus Christ, that guy was 24 years old when he made that movie. Uh, It was the first thing he did, and he like reinvented the language. And uh, I'm also fortunate to be friends with uh, a few people in New Zealand who have just finished their first feature films and have released them. And were uh, I I managed to get onto this episode to talk uh, talk to us about their experience making those films as well. So what I wanted to do uh, is really drill down or just generally chat about what our favorite first films are. And this is this is in my mind it's it's a fairly niche topic because for most f- film goers who aren't interested in the body of work of a filmmaker, who cares what the first movie was? You know, I care about the movie that I want want now. But I'm really interested in the journey that a filmmaker takes from from their first to their second to their third and whether that journey continues. and I, I, in the way that I tend to do things, I, I wanted to kind of break this down into sort of categories of first films. And I wanted us to kind of, uh, maybe these are entirely arbitrary. There's no academic paper that accompanies this list. Uh, you the, are awarded no points. Not yet, anyway. I'll, I'll, I'll see how I go. She hears us share his screen and there's a PowerPoint <laughs> and it's really intimidating, guys. But I, I wanted us to pick like three first films that just really compelled us and that, that we thought were interesting enough to be like, oh, I am very interested in who this filmmaker is, whether we saw it after we'd seen whatever the film was that made them famous or whether it was the film that made them famous. And I thought about these three categories of of films um, very loosely, and they were really, um, they broke down this way. The Forgotten First, 
So these are the films. So so a really great example of this is uh, M Night Shyamalan, who you know many people will remember the breakout being uh, the Sixth Sense, but very few people will know that Praying with Anger is his actual first movie, mm-hmm. which deals with his identity uh, and and being an Indian man, and 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 it's it's a very unseen film, um, and and he has not made another film like it um, in his entire career, and so there's this sort of category of forgotten first, which I'm really interested by. Um, Barry Jenkins recently with uh, Moonlight, his first film, Medicine for Melancholy. Uh, maybe the fo- most famous example of this is Stanley Kubrick with Fear and Desire, who famously like tried to get that movie, like all prints of that movie, burnt so, from existence, and it's uh, so recently been released. Uh, I watched it. It's actually not that great, but I, I can kind of see what he's why he was uh, 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 wanted to get it removed. Then the second category was the high watermark movie. So for certain filmmakers, uh, if this is their first film, you know, like uh, Orson Welles with Citizen Kane, which I actually don't believe is his high watermark, but um, is certainly the one that is often regarded that way. You know, it's uh, his first feature film that appears on the AFI top 100 list every year since then. Um, The high watermark movie, I think, you know, uh, Citizen Kane. uh, Charles Lawton's an interesting one with Night of the Hunter because it was the only movie he made. Um, (laughs) Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption. People will argue with me about that because they probably, there's probably a lot of missed fans in the audience. I was going to say, I I would argue the missed baby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, um, you know, uh, a filmmaker I really love is David Michaud with his uh, feature debut, Animal Kingdom. Um, So I I felt like this one was... Hopefully not too mean spirited, but just kind of thinking about filmmakers who achieved a certain um, uh, a certain status, and then perhaps the remainder of their films didn't quite live up to that. Or well, what if it's the only film? Because one that fell off my list that I'll just name drop right now is UHF. Right. Yeah. The high- uh, <laughs> and I know that. Wait, I did know Weird that, Al uh, direct UHF or no? No, Jay no, Levy did. did, who's basically his music video director, <laughs> and uh, okay. he hasn't made Got another it. feature ever. But this is just this dude who did, I, from, from what I've gleaned, at least from the three minutes of research I did when I realized when I was going through this list. Uh, but like, it's interesting how like it, that is both a high watermark and kind of the only one in that case. Well, but uh, Charles Lawton with Night of the Hunter again is a, is yeah. another great example of that. I mean, that film is amazing. UHF, I don't know. I don't know if I'd call that a high watermark movie, but it's by your definition, it is because if it's the only feature, it's that his high watermark. Sure. It is, it is yeah, his, right, high, watermark. his <laughs> high watermark. Do you want to see my best film? Do you want to see my worst film? Do you want to see my only film? <laughs> The same You'll find all it all fit. on UHF. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third and final category, uh, and this is for uh, this is probably the one that we all sort of think about the most. It's the it's the the category film I call the arrival, uh, not Danny Villeneuve's film, but it's a, but the idea that there's a, a, a film that announces the arrival of a new filmmaker who then goes on to an, a really impressive body of work. Uh, the Coen Brothers with Blood Simple, amazing film that announces a new major talent and and fits right in with the body of their work. Um, uh, Danny Boyle, Shallow Grave is another one that I think about. Guillermo del Toro's Kronos, uh, an astounding film that, uh, you know, announces a new filmmaker. Quentin Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs as well. Being John Malkovich could be Spike a good one Spike being John Malkovich yep. is incredible. Yep. Um, yep. so these are just kind of three categories that I, that I thought about. And it'd be interesting if we kind of could, could place them within this, but also just kind of wanted to get our individual tastes on, uh, on certain first movies. Um, so with that, Josh, I kind of give you the floor for the, for, for your first pick. We're each going to go through three. Um, okay. and, yeah, and yeah. Th- let, let me know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, oh, man, this was, 
this was tougher than I thought when you, cause you, you kind of gave me like open field running, yeah. right? You were like pick three. It doesn't necessarily need to be the best. It can just be the ones that kind of like spark, you know, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. So as I was looking at kind of like some of the suggestions you had, and then I did my own research, I, I just saw thousands. And then I, I started to narrow them down and I figured I, I chose in the end three films from the years when I really became passionate about filmmaking, which uh, for many of us, I think, are kind of like those teenage years. You know, you're like 14 to 18 mm -hmm. for me. It was kind of like I really kind of like zoned in and became the maniac that I am today. <laughs> um, so maybe the first one I'll, I'll, I will pick to start us off Um and let's see. I'm curious about your categories now. The categories were the forgotten uh, first, me... the high watermark, yep. or the the arrival. And these are arbitrary. Just putting it out I there. Would, <laughs> uh, personally, I would call this an arrival film, but maybe you would quibble with me. Mm -hmm. um, I remember seeing this film. It's 1992. It's Times Square in New York. Okay. I walk into a movie theater. It's a beloved franchise that we all know and love. A music video director making his debut. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, we, film... we mentioned this already. No, it's not a franchise. A, no, sorry. Okay, I'm wrong. No, this is a, this is a film the the filmmaker never wants to talk about, but I only want to talk about. It is David Fincher's. Oh Alien my 3. God! Yes, yeah. I um, yeah. I have an interest. Well, not an interesting history about with Alien Three, but I'll I'll talk about it as we go. <laughs> Okay, so, excellent. So, I mean, I, I, my, just in terms of my opening remarks, if there are any, on Alien 3, is just I remember um, just being blown away by the vision, the certitude, the confidence behind the camera, um, all ironic considering now we know what an embattled production this was. Mm. This is a film, the only film in David Fincher's filmography that was taken away from him that he did not have the final cut on, presumably, and... Like I said, like you bring this up with him and he's just like, he'll run in the other direction. Um, but I love, I love so much about this film. I love just like, and I think there are the bones of a lot of his future work in there, whether it's kind of like the beautiful grime of all that, that just kind of permeates all of his films. Um, the, um, uh, the, the kind of perverse sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I think of like uh, Charles Dance, yeah. Charles, Charles Dance played the love interest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Charles Dutton's great in it too, but Charles Dance, I think, plays uh, Ripley's love interest, who is summarily dispatched and killed he's, brutally he's a doctor, as soon as right? Charles Dance and his character yes. is the doctor. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And as soon as they consummate their relationship and like fall in love, he's immediately just gutted in front of her. And that to me like speaks to like again the perverse sense of humor that is underneath all of Fincher's work. Um and I I just remember walking out of that theater knowing and feeling that this was a special filmmaker and in this case at least i was right not all of these will will um whoa that's a, that same, that's a uh, tough one to like i love david fincher don't like we've talked about him on this podcast ad nauseum um the thing that's tough about it is not i i agree with everything you said um i i also think one of the things that's really interesting about that film is the way it deals with male insecurity there's a character in there who is the leader of the of the uh of the prisoners who i believe right. is known to have a low IQ and and everyone is he, his his entire leadership is undermined at every corner um, because of this one fact that everybody knows I I just I think in the body of work of David Fincher the the idea of, of playing with male insecurity and sort of in sort of a very playful but uh, um, 
undermining way is really interesting. But the thing that I think would be challenging for me, because I did, Alien 3 was the first one I saw of the Alien franchise entirely. Oh, wow. And so I saw yeah. it on Well, DX. actually, same. I, I, yeah. yeah, that's an oddity, but yes. But it's a franchise that's marked by two great directors. And so Fincher is the new guy on the block and comes in at the heels of Ridley Scott making probably Ridley Scott's greatest movie and James Cameron coming in and making one of James Cameron's, you know, like many amazing movies. And arguably like the greatest sequel. Greatest sequel ever of made. all time. Maybe next, next to Terminator 2. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so to see the David Fincher that would eventually come after that, that's pr- what, like, if I if I recall correctly as well, Alien Three had a really interesting history, and and everything I do is tied to New Zealand in some way. It but is. the story with Alien Three is that um, Vincent Ward uh, was attached to uh, produce, yeah, and he and he he wrote many drafts, and there was a, a famous draft with a wooden planet. Um, that uh, that 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 never got made, but what was it about Fincher in that film that 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 made you sit up in your seat? Because I I you know like technically I think the thing I remember the most was the Alien Vision. Yes, yeah. the Alien Cam, yeah. basically. Like yes, it's like it's like racing through those narrow passageways after the prey. It also has um, the best version of the alien because this is the movie when you start getting it mixed with animals. Yeah, it's an alien and a dog, it's right? A, it's a, no, it's a, right. is it a dog or a bull? I don't remember. I think it's, it's a, probably it's a dog. dog. Yeah, I think it was a Rottweiler yeah. or something that uh, the alien yeah. mixes with. Yeah, so yeah, so that, uh, like, I remember especially even um, uh, the toys. Yeah. Like, you can get the different styles of Alien, and the one from Alien 3 was in that. Which is weird. Side note, do you remember back when kids' toys were based on rated R movie franchises? Yeah. I do have my Clockwork Orange figure behind me. Terminator 2, Alien, like, it's weird. I wanted that Ripley uh, in the loader thing. Like, my my dad built me, a. I got the Ripley loader, and my dad built me a wooden cage the size of the Queen Alien that I could make her push into the cage like <laughs> it's, it's the it's the action figure if you just push the arms together it says get away from her you yeah, bitch. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, it might as well <laughs> anyway sorry derail what what so what was it about fincher and that and you've you, obviously I, I i would say you've watched everything he's made since oh yeah 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 i i think it's often what i talk about with filmmakers that i i, I enjoy feeling that the shorthand of a filmmaker mm. of feeling like there is a purpose and intention behind every shot and there's no, and whether that works in the end is almost immaterial the it's the intent and the and the confidence that i enjoy tarantino has that um spielberg has that all the greats have that and i felt that for a first time and that's rare in a first time filmmaker i think um you know it, you know there's a lot of like you know just shooting loads of coverage and finding it in the edit. There's none of that in this film. It feels like he knew, again, and it's funny I say this, I mean, it's obviously a compromised vision. Yeah. And he would probably say, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, Josh. <laughs> like, that's that's 60% of my movie there. But there's enough of that confidence in the in the filmmaking, in the production design, in the, in the in impeccable... Um, uh, every image is impeccable to me and gorgeous to me, even in its luridness and, 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 and darkness, um, that it just, and, and, and then like, you see that right immediately thereafter, what, a couple years later, in seven and it's, and it's like, yeah, yeah, it, it's just all the seeds were there and he just, um, I, 
he just needed a better script and more freedom, and then he was off to the race. I, I yeah. actually did because uh, I because I watched Finch's films at the drop of a hat, and so I watched Alien Three because I because I I do this. I just watch movies in order in chronological film film order, and uh, I watched Alien Three, and then I watched Seven, and it, it was amazing the transition between those two movies because it, like Seven feels when you watch it in comparison to what Alien Three is feels like a Kubrick movie. It's it's precise in almost every way that. Alien Three occasionally feels a little missy, and yeah. and and marked by the kind of like the confidence you're talking about, where every frame, you know, to 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 borrow from Tony Zhao, every frame is a painting. Um, right. It's it, yeah, but but I I would uh, this is a great pick actually. I, I think uh, this is this is a challenging one because I uh, like you say I think Fincher himself would not place this high in his body of work. Well, and, and I wouldn't either. Don't yeah. get me wrong. If I'm ranking Ava Fincher's work, this is not in the top five. Yeah. Um, but I think just all things be like, if I take the names out of it and whatever, I think this is kind of a fascinating, eminently watchable, yeah. kind of gorgeous film, albeit very flawed. Um, and again, I wasn't choosing necessarily the best, but no. most kind of like the ones that rocked my world. No, yeah, no, or at least at least some of these. And this one, this film absolutely rocked my world at six. I'm so excited Alien- by that because I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back and rewatch that again now. Alien Three. It is the how do I put this? It was the first film where I a sort of realized I think films were. This is a weird thing to say that films were made by multiple people when I was a kid because I watched it and, and there were two things that and that my opinions have changed based on knowledge of how a film is made. So I I credit that because I remember watching it when I was younger, first Alien movie, I thought it was awesome. Saw the other ones, I liked them better. My friends all shit on Alien 3. So then I was a little like, oh yeah, I don't like Alien 3. And then when I, then when I, you know, uh, you know, got to, to late high school, early college or whatever, and I watched it again and I sort of learned the story behind it. It was one of those things where I was like, oh, like these things aren't made in a vacuum. Like there's right. there's so much interesting stuff on the bones of this that I think I, I do credit this movie in particular, at least as one of the touch points of like, yeah, like basically saying to myself, go dig deeper, dummy. <laughs> like there's a lot going on. <laughs> well, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm always going to be fascinated by this production is because, you know, in this age where we kind of like end up knowing how the sausage is made on most films to a pretty yeah. uh, if you want to the info like yeah. yeah and and there's a tremendous amount of info on this as well but the fact that he won't talk about it the fact that we'll never know exactly what his intent was and there's still a mystery around this film an unrealized um vision there that i i i will always um I don't know. I always find it kind of an enigma and kind of a skeleton key to the rest of his work. And, and um, he is also very young. Like, so he had the, this long storied music video career directing like sure. some of the, the biggest artists. Uh, I think my favorite is the Paul Abdul music video, but he also did George Michael's uh, uh, Faith. Faith. Yeah, right? yeah, he did. Faith? Yeah, yeah. yeah, he did. Faith. He's yeah. like, he's done so many Madonna videos. Did Vogue. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. Fincher is yeah. one of the before, I think it was propaganda films with Fincher, Bay and Spike Jones, right? Or something yeah, like that. sounds right. I was in Romanek also yeah Romanek was there um so Fincher's early career before he even makes movies is incredible and also he started as a visual effects person on the Star Wars on Star Wars um Jedi I think yeah yeah, yeah. so I I mean we talked about this actually just last week which is the weirdo thing in me which is that I find Zodiac to be a comforting movie 
oddly. Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I, yeah, so one, one, one of the guests on my, so my pod, as you know, I asked folks for a comfort movie. So like now I can't remember one of my Guillermo guests. Guillermo oh, on was, your show, Guillermo del Toro on your show, uh, said something, maybe it wasn't on your show, but, uh, he said something that I've always remembered, which is the one sock movie. Have you heard him talk about this? No, tell me. What he said he he had this thing, and he told, and I think specifically he says it's Zodiac. He says that um, if you're getting ready to go out and you're sitting on the edge of your bed and you're putting your socks on and the movie is on the screen, what will happen so is hard. you will sit and watch the entire movie and just have one sock on. <laughs> he calls it this one sock movie. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, now I'm, I'm remembering the, the the filmmaker that mentioned uh, Zodiac as their comfort movie to me, and it's a kind of an odd random one. It was Jason Reitman. Oh, Okay. Jason Reitman actually yeah. selected Zodiac, but but I I get it um, to a degree. Like again, it's just like such confident, fascinating, engrossing filmmaking, and there's something comforting in that. Yeah. in a way. Yeah, uh, uh, that's a that's a great pick, Matt. How are you going to follow? Uh, Alien oh wow, um, Alien versus Predator. Yeah, Requiem. Yeah, yeah. The second yeah, Requiem. Yeah, I, it wasn't going to be the first. I'm not a Philistine. I'm no, not a Philistine. No, come on. God. Um, Show me some respect. Yeah, yeah. come on. Uh, <laughs> it's Freddy versus Jason. Um, uh, <laughs> no, uh, I chose uh, for my first one. Uh, I guess uh, it's it's the film that I quoted in the beginning of this uh, this podcast. Pee Wee's Big Adventure being Tim Burton's first uh, feature length film, and um, I I picked it because. Well, first and foremost, is sort of a, a little bit of a side thing. It's not even my favorite, though it is one of my top of his films. Uh, mm. I would honestly say that I like Beetlejuice better. Just I think that plays into my uh, specific oddness more. But I do feel like um, out of every human on the planet, it feels like Tim Burton is the only person that could take the world of Pee Wee Herman <laughs> and like a version of the real world and make it work in a way that is not hyper annoying and dare I say uh, uh, something that I actually cherish. Like the way that this thing functions, it shouldn't work. Like nothing, if you just wrote down sentences about like, then Pee Wee gets in a tractor trailer with a ghost trucker and you're like, <laughs> what the shit? Like that's not how I don't care. But like you can also kind of see, even though that synergy is working, you can kind of see like, the seeds, again, I, Josh, to your point, you're saying you can sort of see little bits through Alien 3, but like, uh, like even if you look at the way he, uh, Tim Burton uses like exaggerated like geometry and shapes in his stuff, like you start seeing that more and more, I think, in Edward Scissorhands, but in some of the dream sequences, like with the clowns wheeling the fucking, the bike <laughs> through the whatever that, whatever that was, um, then the humor and timing, I mean, obviously you go back to Beetlejuice, but like you get a lot of that sort of like the hints of how he's going to do like Mars attacks and like a couple other things. Um, even this is a weird thing to say, because I don't think the action in Batman or Batman Returns is particularly great, but it is competent. And I, the, I, there's similar takes to how action is done in Pee-wee's <laughs> big adventure. Like the bar scene, a couple other things, whenever there's actual like physical conflict, like it's silly, but it still feels like it actually has an impact, which is I think what you need in an 80s Batman movie. Uh, <laughs> and then obviously stop motion. He loves stop motion. He got Nightmare and and Corpse Bride and, you know, all that. Just Franken, Frankenweenie. Frankenweenie. Uh, the, yeah. the remake. Although I don't, was his original Frankenweenie the short? Was that Claymation <laughs> as well? I, 
I believe so. Uh, and I'm going to tell you my secret shame right now, which is that I've never seen Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, what? I, I, I like. <laughs> there's this. Whole- I don't want to be that guy because I'm sure one of the one of the other picks I will not have seen. But well, I've not. Seen, I, I, I literally haven't. Like my my first knowledge of Paul Rubens is the theater incident. Oh no. <laughs> that's right. that's right. So that's all I know about him. Pee-wee's big I, adventure I had not seen. I grew up with Pee-wee's Playhouse. Yeah. Like the it, it, again, it's it's one of those concepts that sh- that shouldn't work and yet it did. Um and then to take I would argue this this works far better it than does. frankly Pee-wee's Playhouse, which is kind of more fascinating and kind of just as an artifact, a cultural artifact as th- this is a film that legitimately I would argue works and still works. Yeah, like, you could, it's like you could pop it in right. today and it and you'd enjoy yourself. Right. Uh, I, on that note, so I call this I guess I'd call this one of the high water marks for me because I can basically see all of the all of the things. And to be honest, I have fallen off of his work post either Sweeney Todd or Dark Shadows. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. I don't know. This is me making up anecdotal evidence on the spot. So take from that what you will. But I feel like when a director kind of gets obsessed with an actor like not obsessed but like we'll only put that actor in like five films in a row even if the films are good and i'm not saying that the films sort of after this sort of part are films i enjoy i just kind of lose interest and i don't know why that is it doesn't it, i'm not trying to take away from uh you know the work of because people have their people like and that's great sure. but like there is something where it's like in, in burton's work in particular it was johnny depp and like you know cool but like it never felt like tim burton always sort of was always a fresh feeling like everything he's even though it had his own style I, actually I, maybe actually i think i might have nailed it here it is Tim Burton has a style and whatever he's going to do, he's going to bring probably more of that feeling and style to that thing. So it's already like, that's my carryover. Whereas now you're tacking on a large name actor to it. And I'm like, so this is, I've seen this before then, right? Like I, this is an experience I've already had. Um, I think maybe that's why uh, I fell off a little bit, but I'd love to see like, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen big eyes and big eyes seemed like something that I would, I, I would enjoy and I have yet to watch. I was going to cite that, unfortunately, as evidence, frankly, of like even that, which feels like, oh, he's trying for something different. Mm-hmm. And at least he's kind of like untethering himself to some of his comfort things still didn't quite work for me. I mean, this is ah. a guy that has a lifetime pass for me. Like yeah, his sure. his work always like I, I, I'll i be an idiot and keep coming back for more and hoping he's back to like the Tim Burton of the first five or seven movies that he made. Um but I think I, I think you're spot on in everything you talked about. It's kind of again like one of these films that really sets the tempo and, and, and put all the, the seeds are there. I would also add like him centering the outsider, the mm-hmm. freak at the set in the middle of the frame mm-hmm. um, is right there. And Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Pee Wee is such like a weirdo in the best possible way, and he and he imagines him as like this like suave, mm-hmm. awesome hero, um, and. That's that's a theme that keeps recurring in his mm-hmm. in his work, and it's right there from the start. Absolutely, I also think with with Burton, there is a thing which is that uh, which happens to certain filmmakers of a certain pedigree, which is that they become a brand unto themselves, and that brand, um, in terms of the audience 
recognition or or um, endurance for that brand can waver over time. And and because I actually, um, my, so I, I have a six year old son, and I'm trying desperately to get him to watch movies with me. It's very tricky in in a Paw Patrol age. Um, but, but oddly, I, I I was sure, Dad. But what is what is Tim Burton done on TikTok? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, the 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 thing that I, I like, I we were we were scanning through um, some some streaming platform, and I came across the image of Edward Scissorhands, and I like in my brain, I was like, oh, this is actually a really interesting image for a six year old. It's a man with scissors for hands. There's nothing more um, childlike in terms of the way that is that pastiche is created than Edward Scissorhands. And 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 I'll be honest, my son watched the entire thing the whole way through, which is something he never does. Um, and he was kind of compelled by it, and he had questions about the snow at the end, and and um, <laughs> you know, there were, he he was genuinely engaged by it, and he and he was also really, I think. The thing that I had forgotten that's so great about um, Edward Scissorhands was that it, despite all the sort of quirkiness of design, it is a film with a real beating heart, at, you know, at the center of a Pinocchio story. You know, like it is, it, it does function that way. And I think, you know, for me personally, I think the Burton brand has maybe forgotten or, you know, not quite worked to the same degree of like connecting the emotional center to the design center of a film, perhaps. But he, like you say, he gets a free pass, no, yeah. no matter what. You know? I think by the time, uh, and this isn't his fault, I don't think, this is producer's fault, when it's like from the twisted mind or whatever of Tim Burton, like when it, when, when you start right, labeling- the warning side once you're, yeah. When you start labeling <laughs> what kind of mind you have, I'm like, all right, bro, we're good. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Yeah, so that's my pick. That's my pick. What about Great. you, Sheer? I, and I'll have to watch it now. Um, yeah. the, the one that I've got is a film that, uh, well, it's a filmmaker that everybody knows. Uh, I, I would doubt uh, this is quite possibly the the most famous working filmmaker today. Um, uh, but this is a film that I would say is a forgotten first, but one that I will throw down and say is one of his best films ever made uh, that he's ever made. And that is Christopher Nolan's first film following, uh, which I don't know if either of you have seen it or I have not. I have seen it yeah. all like 72 minutes of it, uh, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty short. 70, 70 minutes of it. So <laughs> Does that fall into it, our it, totally really microcosm rules that mean nothing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. All I, right, I make cool, the rules cool, cool. here. No, no, I'm not, I'm not quibbling with it being a film. I'm just <laughs> citing that it's fascinating that like his first is. No, I like, I like yes. quibbling. That's my favorite <laughs> thing to do here. Well, the, th the reason I love this is that in the annals of, of great first films, we often think about, uh, there's two filmmakers that come to mind uh, and, and that is um, uh, uh, El Mariachi, so Robert Rodriguez mm. and Kevin Smith with Clerks. And, um, you know, the, the stories of those two films are, you know, young filmmaker uh, scrounging together over the weekends, you know, maxing out all the credit cards, shooting a thing on black and white and putting it out and like, you know, cashing it, you know, making a big success after that. And following is exactly that story but a film in my mind that that resonates with me you know more than than El Mariachi or, or um or Clerks I, and I love those two films and those two filmmakers but but the thing that's really fascinating about following to me is that all the hallmarks of what makes a great Christopher Nolan film are evident in that film. His play with nonlinear time frames, his uh, idea of the protagonist and the antagonist uh, basically being uh, ideological foes as opposed to physical flows. Um, his idea that people can be manipulated through them through the way uh, memory and information can be doled out to them and to the audience. Um, there's even and this was the, the most striking thing. 
is that there's a really prescient moment when uh, they burgle the main character's house. Actually, I should actually tell for, for a lot of people who haven't seen Following. It's about a young writer who uh, starts following strangers uh, to, in order to gather material for his writing and ends up following a thief and starts burgling, uh, bur- burglarizing homes with them. However, this thief is more akin to, in fact, has the same name as Leonardo DiCaprio's character from Inception. His name is Cobb. Um, and uh, his idea is to uh, take things away from people so that they can see what they've missed. So his, uh, his, his. Uh, <laughs> although he is a petty criminal, he, he sort of has this bigger idea about what uh, what it means to steal something from someone. Like a tear above the wet bandage. <laughs> yeah, tear above. <laughs> okay, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and there's even this sort of weirdly prescient scene where they uh, walk up and and in order to understand the burglar, the writer uh, invites him to his own home to burglarize his own home as though as though someone else's house and the front and, and if we if we argue that in many of Christopher Nolan's film, the lead character is a cipher for Christopher Nolan himself. The writer's room uh, apartment is just the sort of dingy room with a typewriter, but the front door is adorned with a giant, very prominently featured Batman logo, um, which I, I was just like, oh, that's it's just a neat little touch. I mean, obviously, he either was seeing the future. He had been through time and saw something. But I also I, I genuinely I love how tight this film is. I love how uh, it's. It, it, it crystallizes this idea of memory and time so well. And as well, uh, the, there's a confidence with which he is directing this under all the, the sort of challenges that if that first filmmakers go through, which is, you know, like making a film on the weekends with, um, with black and white film stock just on his own, you know, wherever he can make it, it's a really dingy movie, but his presence of mind for how to place the character in every scene so that the audience kind of like perks up and goes, wait, what's just happened here? Um, you know, like the, the main character starts with long hair and then the next scene he's got, you know, he's got a haircut and he's wearing a suit. And so you immediately, as the audience, you're kind of like, whoa, what just happened here? And the presence of mind to kind of make a film under the circumstances that he made it under and still have that kind of really tight knit relationship with the audience, uh, I think is, is, is so striking. And I, I like, I, I really do think, uh, of Nolan's work and I've watched everything, love everything gets a free pass for me. It is still, you know, I think we did a ranking a few, uh, probably a couple of years ago on an episode. It's probably my third favorite Nolan film. Um, wow. you know, it go memento, the prestige and then following. Um, I don't know. What, what do you recall about it when you saw it? Um, Josh? Well, I, it's it's a it's been it's been a while, but one of the things that I like that you mentioned that I think is 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 very apt and and fascinating to think about because yeah I remember reading about it that this wasn't like a even a continuous shoot no. like he was shooting it as you say like on weekends like over a long I think a whole time. year yeah and I wonder if he adapted to the to that circumstance or just stuck to his gun like how he found the happy medium between like like creating this cohesive singular piece of work and yet operating in those circumstances, which is, you know, all filmmaking is about compromise, but this is like the most uncompromising seemingly filmmaker we've got. And how did he kind of like create a, seem- a seemingly uncompromised vision without the money and without the, 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 the accoutrements you would normally have a film. So the fact that he was able to make something like you're not even 
like ranking it on a scale. Yeah. You're ranking it just against all, against of, his all of his work, yeah. of his, it's, which is just so telling. I mean, I, I wouldn't go that far and I, I need to re- revisit it because frankly, I probably haven't watched it in 15 years. Mm-hmm. But um, certainly the fact that it's even in that conversation yeah. speaks volumes. Yeah. And 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 I, the thing, I, maybe because I also saw it under the circumstances, which is that I got, um, there was a, a DVD release of it. The, and and when I saw Memento for the first time, uh, which is, you know, his arrival movie, but it's not his first movie. That was a moment where I was just like, this is the guy, you know, like the yeah. first frames of yeah, Memento. That's one of those. Yeah. I was just like, this is the guy. Whoever this guy is, I don't know who it is, but this is the guy. Um, I, I I was obsessed with Polaroids and the idea that he did a film where the first frame is a Polaroid undeveloping and then you see what happened behind the, the image of the Polaroid. I was just like... This is the guy, um, <laughs> and um, but the so I went back and I found following, and there was a DVD release of it. Now I think it's being re-released as a Criterion um, Blu-ray, and it is on the Criterion channel uh, channel with all the um, side pieces. Uh, but the they do a script to script to um, film comparison, and that question you're asking about the presence of mind to uh, to do this film as it is, or to adapt to the situations he has, it's the presence of mind because it's in the script. The the wow. the time jumps that uh he is working with is in the script uh from the get-go so he's not only working under the situation which is that i can only film for two days every weekend i also have to understand where i need to shoot where i need to structure this particular scene so that it will appear in scene 30 and in scene two and in scene five uh in non-chronological order um so i there's just a presence of mind there that uh that and again, what I like about it as a first film, so to sort of discuss it in that way, it like you say, it it's not about the the accoutrements that come later as a filmmaker. It's it's actually the thing that makes him a great filmmaker, regardless of the scale that he works at. I'm interested. You know, we're talking about like Burton, like and people. This is not a new conversation. Everyone's we've talked about. You know, anyone that follows Burton knows like the yeah the last 10, 15 years like just hasn't been yeah. what the first 10, 15 years was. Yeah. And like right now we're like, where are we at in retrospect? When we talk in 30 years, like where are we at in the Nolan trajectory right now? It, we're pretty early. I, that's the thing. That's the thing that's exciting about him is I feel like we're pretty early. I, Though I, I would think, argue, I mean, this is a whole side conversation. Yeah. Like Tenet is like arguably the one that works the least. A hundred percent. And there could be a miss and right. they can swing back. There could be a dip. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But, but if it's the... <laughs> I, I just Burton like yeah. like uh, uh, wave yeah the form. drop off the cliff or yeah. is it the like, uh, yeah the, yeah the other thing about it is as a first film um, he he doesn't he seems to be singularly creating something that is his own like you could argue in this early stages the filmmakers that he's got to look up to and 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 I know Ridley Scott is a key influence for him but and when I look at following I think of Jean Pierre Melville uh, and Army of Shadows and a film you know um, like The Samurai but this film doesn't feel like any of those things. So it's, it's so uniquely his and so uniquely like, uh, this is who I am as a filmmaker and there's nobody else that can do this. And it's not, you know, he's not showing off. This is just who he is. And to right. be able to do that at his first film, you know, I've watched his short films like Doodlebug and a, and a few other things before that as well. And, they, and they're, they're cute. They're nice. But there's nothing in that that says he's going to do this and do it so well and be so consistent about it. And then, you know, that's kind of what makes him uh, uh, an easy filmmaker to talk about. And cer- certainly, um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I rewatched it uh, in in pre- in preparation for this. And I was like, it, it's just staggering to me that this is uh, uh, this is his first film. 
Yeah, great pick. So one thing I want to do, and I, I'm, we're gonna we we will try and go go through these a little bit quicker. But uh, as I mentioned, <laughs> what are you uh, talking about? It's <laughs> only I'm, happy to, I'm happy to keep talking. <laughs> by the way, like, in honor of Christopher Nolan, we've lost all sense of time. <laughs> time is meaningless. But three filmmaker friends of mine have recently made their first film, and I wanted to uh, just grab them for, as as they had just released their first film to talk about it. Um, and these are all New Zealand filmmakers, obviously, because I'm from New Zealand. Um, but um, uh, these three were are, are people who I've known for a long period. Uh, we've all, you know, been working in the New Zealand film industry for years, and it's it's a very challenging environment, which is very different to the United States. But these three people, I'm very, I feel very proud to know at this moment because they've 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 sort of climbed the hill of their first movie. They did the uh, thing. They did the thing. They did the thing that we're talking about. Um, so this first one is uh, a filmmaker by the name of Matt Saville. And actually, this is funny. This just happened today. But I don't know if you saw Ty West's trailer for the movie X, which came out today. I haven't watched it yet, but I saw it. I saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt Saville, who is the director of the first film, is actually in that movie and is in the trailer. So it was just a nice little tie in to sort of see him there because they filmed uh, that film in New Zealand. Uh, but Matt is a, a wonderful playwright uh, and screenwriter who I've been lucky to know for a while. Um, he's also... <laughs> one of the only white people I know who would write a movie about Bollywood very convincingly, which is one of the early scripts that he had written. Uh, but this particular film, which is a, a lovely, small, independent um, New Zealand film, uh, which unfortunately I haven't been able to get a chance to see yet, but I but I, I know a lot about it. Um, he managed to do uh, a remarkable thing in the year of Dune, uh, also get to work with Charlotte Rampling, who is the lead in his film. And um, if you don't mind, I'd like to just play a little uh, interview from um, Matt Saville and his first film, which is called Juniper. Samuel. Sam. Come closer. Turn around. What? I want to take a look at you. Down on the beach. Sarah's going to need your help. I have to sort out Ruth's trust in England. She's your mother. But you're going to help look after her whether you like it or not. The main thing is her leg. I just need your help with moving her, really. Keeping her company. Believe me, this is far more humiliating for me than it is for you. Gin to here. Water to here. And a squeeze of Juniper is the story of a um, suicidal teenager whose alcoholic grandma comes to live with him. He's forced to look after her when his father takes leave. His grandma is a really intense character. She's um, an ex-war journalist. She's based on my own grandmother, but also based on the great Martha Gellhorn. And uh, she's played by the amazing Charlotte Rampling. I suppose in a weird way, it's a, uh, it's a platonic love story between those two characters. You know, there are a lot of, um, a lot of fun moments, but um, one of them was uh, shooting this scene, Charlotte and George. And Sam's daring her to throw a glass, and she throws a glass at him. And uh, there's one scene which just had to had to land right beside his head with throwing this candy glass. And uh, thought it would take a while. We only had a limited amount of <laughs> candy glasses and so on. And turns out Charlotte Rampling is an amazing shot. So she pretty much got it straight away. She had to precision fire these two glasses. <laughs> and now we're water it down. Do you like another shot? Seems I run out of ammunition. Juniper's has now been released in New Zealand and it should be released in Australia soonish. We've got a um, theatrical release in the UK uh, halfway through this year and then on through um, 
Europe and so on. And then uh, there is something potentially in the works with the States. So um, uh, hopefully you'll be able to get to see it before the end of the year. It's funny. You, you, sorry, what you, you brought up uh, how uh, Charlotte Ramplin was in Dune and like, it was great that he got her in. And then the first line is like, come here. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, is she going to have her with the hand She's in the box? Do the thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's Charlotte Rampling's thing now. She insists on putting people's hands yeah, in boxes. Yeah, I think it is. In any film. Uh, I'm very excited to see Matt Savile's film. And I think, what, again, another aim of this episode uh, is to talk about first films from filmmakers we love, but also to, to seek out new filmmakers. Uh, and Matt Savile is certainly someone I would keep on your radar. Uh, Juniper, uh, there is. Uh, it's currently going to be uh, distributed in the UK, but we're not sure of the US release date. Hopefully it'll appear on iTunes and, uh, and now you've gotten a taste of it. All right. So shall we go to this next round, gentlemen? Yes. What if we said no? Let's do it. What if, yeah, what I feel if, like, well, yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate the time. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> All right. What is your what is the what is the next film that really got you excited about a certain filmmaker, or just as a film on its own? Now I'm just like debating. Like I, I had this like big list, and then I narrowed it to three. And now as we're talking, I'm like, now I'm like, maybe I should go a different way. I'm gonna I'm gonna call an audible. I'm gonna mention a different film, Ooh. partially in honor of your New Zealand roots. And oh I'm my god! Like, I, I think a, I know what this is. Yeah, yeah you, 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 you could probably yeah. guess it. Okay, this is from when I came of age as a yeah. film lover. This is a sci-fi film with a, a great cast, a great premise, gorgeous production design, <laughs> a shorthand as a filmmaker. That this is a case where sadly it hasn't really panned out in the way that I thought it was. Um, oh, maybe it's. Oh, oh, I guess. Wait this a is not what, This what might not be the film here. I'm thinking of. Okay. No, it must not. Okay. Be. It's not. It's definitely not. You're gonna. I, I feel like you're about both gonna be like, "What is this guy talking okay. about?" Okay. I love it. You ready? The movie is Gattaca. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, the Andrew yeah, Nichol yeah. directed yeah. by Andrew Nichol. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Good. That is a uh, okay. All right. Yeah, you, you got me. I, I, I until because you said sci-fi film. I had Peter Jackson's Bad Taste uh, all the way. Oh, that, okay. That's where I went first as well. But okay, Gattaca. Uh, this is an odd one. I know this is a little bit of a weird pick, but I was fascinated by Gattaca uh, when I first saw it, and I still hold that it's a great film. Um, Andrew Nichol, who had a career and still has a career as a screenwriter, um, I think most notably was credited uh, on Truman, Truman Show, Show. Um, never has quite lived up to the promise, sadly, of Gattaca. And I think that that's why maybe partially I thought this was worth bringing up. Um, this is a kind of a provocative uh, premise for a film. It's anchored by great performances from Ethan Hawke and uh, Jude Law and Uma Thurman um, and is kind of a look at the our near future when uh, genetics dictate your uh, future um, and uh, you cannot uh, basically dictate your own future if you don't have the right blood. Um, mm. And that's what our lead character, played by Ethan Hawke, faces in this. Um, this is a film that I remember at the time. I felt like a very shorthand. As a, this is one where like, I, I got it wrong, and maybe we all got it wrong, where it's like a, re a real shorthand in terms of, of direction. It felt like a very precise level of filmmaking. Um, and... It wasn't. It hasn't really quite panned out, and I um, and I thought it was worth bringing up for that reason. I I, I mean I, I I love Andrew Nichol for the fact that he did write the Truman Show. I I, I think it's sounds. And if if I'm not mistaken, this is Ethan Hawke and Jude Law share the same. They they switch DNA in the movie, right? It is Jude Law. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, exactly. and, but Jude Law yes, becomes Jude Law, crippled who, at some point, and Ethan Hawke takes his place. Is that correct? Jude Law, I think at the outset is already yes, he he doesn't have the use of his legs, and um, Ethan Hawke is basically 
using the blood of this guy to pass himself off as this kind of genetically perfect human being that can um i think i think the goal is to get on a space yes yes yeah, that's great uh, yeah right but right right I, and and I I definitely see what you're saying because Sim, Simone, which is the film that follows, is is yes. is the Al Pacino uh, vehicle, which uh, is kind of like the Truman Show but inverted and and not quite working. But Lord of War, I yes. thought, was a film that that really did click. Right? I, I was going to say I, that's my favorite. I will favorite. give you that. Yeah, I will give you that. And I I, I don't know if I've seen Lord of War since it came yeah. out, but Lord of War, as I recall, does work. Yeah. Um, but I would argue again, like, how, how do we determine, like, is is it, is it the anomaly or the or, or not? Because those are the only two in that filmography that stand yeah. out at all. The, like, then then we have some stuff like In Time and The Host. Yeah. Like, is I In Time? Even, I never saw yeah. In Time, but it's it felt Justin like it, yeah. it felt like Gattaca Light in my brain. <laughs> it is. Okay, it's okay. okay. But also, yeah. I I think yeah. Nickel, and again, I don't know much about him, uh, but but it did feel like he was kind of working in a space which was high concept science fiction, right? Like Gattaca is really yeah. that, uh, Simone is really that, In Time is really that. And, and I guess yes. coming off the Truman Show, that was that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder about that. But I, I look, I uh, Gattaca is not, for me personally, I have seen it. I, I, I like it a lot, but it's not one that I, that I like really resonate with. My partner, Jamie, fucking loves Gattaca. <laughs> Get Jamie on. Yeah, I know. Who is that? What are we talking you? <laughs> She'll be very, very happy that Gattaca came up. Yeah. Look, and again, don't mistake. I'm not saying Gattaca is you, Alien no, 3. No, it did but speak to you. It's yeah. no Alien. It spoke Gattaca. It's no Alien 3. <laughs> Josh Horowitz. That's the pull quote of the episode. My criteria is when I saw it, did I, as whatever, 16-year-old Josh, however old I was, think, oh, this guy's got it. There's something really cool here. This future is one i'm going to track yes that 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 absolutely fits the bill for this one i i thought it was an interesting juxtaposition next to alien 3 where it's like i got it right yeah (laughs) totally trend spotted well and this one you can't win them all i i I also i i while i i personally like the film just doesn't ring in my brain in terms of like things i remember i do remember it being very austere and well really um like you said, I guess there's a sort of sense of confidence when it comes to someone who can hold the camera in their first movie. You always find that like when when someone is willing to hold a shot in their first movie, that that somehow is quite arresting. Right. Well, especially in that era, like post, you know, Tarantino, yeah. you know, the, the kind of just like where it's like motion, movement, verite, like let's just like let's just give it energy behind the camera, uh, almost like playing it safe, not safe, but playing it austere, as you say, is um, almost the more daring way to go. Yeah. And and now in retrospect, I don't know if like, you know, I would need to dig into it more. Like, did he just surround himself with, did he have a great TP? Did he have a great production designer? Because maybe this is just like a talented screenwriter that frankly surrounded himself with 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 folks that in this case gave the material um yeah more you know more heft than the rest of his work. you know what's really interesting that i actually didn't click onto because i i i think i saw gattaca after the truman show is the truman show came out after gattaca mm-hmm. uh which i'm surprised right. by because i i thought the reason he was able to kind of command you know for a first science fiction film that's done at a scale that 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 gattaca has done i would have thought the success of the truman show was was the thing that kind of drove mm-hmm. that but in fact the truman show was released a year later perhaps the the, the deal for the truman show had already happened and right. he had already kind of made his uh way in um 
but he also wrote, uh, you know, a great Spielberg movie, The Terminal. Um, so, you know, I, look, uh, in, in, in New Zealand circles, he is a legend. <laughs> well, there you go. This one is for you. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so my next one, uh, to be honest, uh, Shahir, this will not shock you at all. Um, is uh, the first sort of this comes from the formulative years of a young Matthew Kroll in the sense of this film is one of the two reasons why I got into entertainment, why I went to film school, why I worked on getting into film, then I moved to television. Now I'm in YouTube. My screens just keep getting smaller. That's a different conversation. <laughs> um, but this film and this director have kind of stuck with me throughout uh, and it's one where even though there has been, I think, a bit of a downward turn, in my opinion, I will always show up for like Tim Burton. I'm not really showing up for anymore. But the second that this dude puts out a movie, I will be there. Uh, I am talking about Sam Raimi and the Evil Dead. Um, evil. The Evil Dead was the movie that did two things at the same time. And I can't believe it did both of the sides of this coin. One impressed the hell out of me, how a film can be made on such a low budget and be so effective. And two, teach me that anyone can go make a movie. Um, and that in conjunction with, uh, and Shears told me, told me to hear about me talk about this ad nauseum, but that in conjunction with escape from New York, Mm -hmm. Uh, were sort of the two pieces of cinema that I was like, I want to make stuff. Um, also, side note, Josh, so when you were telling me that uh, friggin' Kurt Russell was hanging out, talking to you, doing friggin' uh, burden lines, like, it's just, <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, but, oh, and also, weirdly enough, they both came out in 1981, which I wasn't uh, alive for, but I'm pretty sure I was conceived during so i i, I like i was it's in your dna it's there yeah um yeah. no but Raimi has been um someone and, and and i think honestly the first director's career who i actually watched like evil dead uh the evil dead had such a a, a distinct feeling to it that i like then went and wanted to look for more of that thing in the rest of his work of course you know there's there's the sort of like bruce campbell verse of like evil dead 2 and uh uh, Army of Dark. Although, did he direct Army of Darkness? He did. He did, right? Yeah. I thought yeah. he did. Yeah. He did the whole trilogy. Um, yeah. And he did one episode of the series, which I still have not seen. Um, <laughs> but then even to like sort of like side stuff that was just impressive as hell for different reasons. Obviously, Darkman. Um, yeah. And uh, even but then like the weirder stuff, like he did an Iggy Pop video uh, about for a song called Cold Metal, which isn't always that great. But I thought about this when I was doing my research. One of the like the first line of that fucking song is I play tag in the auto graveyard. And I was like, yeah, that's the most Sam lyric. Uh, that's the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sam Raimi lyric I think I've ever heard. Um, and then, of course, as we're going down the list, we have the Spider-Man, which are apparently having a resurgence right now. Yeah. Um, Is that right? I haven't heard no, that. No. Yeah, people, people care about the Spider-Man yeah, again? The, the Spider-Man. <laughs> Watch out. Here comes the Spider-Man. Um, when Spider-Man 1 came out, it was like taking... Matt's two favorite things, <laughs> which would be Sam Raimi and and Marvel's Spider-Man. I'm like, how do I, what did I do to deserve this? This is something that I, that I am not a good enough person for this movie to exist. Um, same with Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 3, there was some dancing. Um, but again, we all, like, that's sort of, again, I feel like when things are uh, being a little hoisted onto a filmmaker. 
And then I, 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 to be honest, I, I kept watching, but I, I, um, I, 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 my fall off period is more in the drag me to hell. Uh, oh, um, I really like drag me to hell. We, I, I, no, I, I liked it. Oz though is a longer conversation. There we go. So like, there? by, by fall off, I mean, I, I, I stopped after drag me to hell. I watched Oz. I didn't like Oz. I, I think Oz came about in the time. When did Oz come out? It was like, it was 2013. The, okay. So that's when. Was that his last film? Uh, so kind of. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It really is. I don't like. And, and I think, and true. I think, you know, like the, the Fincher story, it was an unhappy production despite, you know, like right. all the successes he had before. But in that time is when the MCU was sort of like formulating even in behind the scenes. And then everything felt like it had to be like a like everything started feeling like there had to be like that interconnectivity or like that world thing. And then I was like, oh, so this is the first of a series of Oz movies that I don't like. And I was just like, all right, whatever. And now of course he's going back to the to the the Marvel well uh you know for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which I have high hopes for, but I also and this is to Shahir's credit, um Shahir has often talked about how the MCU can take directors that like we love and just make them I personally I love the MCU. I am a shill through and through, but I will say oftentimes directors works are not the, the best ones aren't in the MCU. So I'm curious to see if I can really get sort of that, like, I think what I nailed, think about his filmmaking, I think of earnestness, like if that's one word that I could think of for Raimi's work. And I'm hoping that that earnestness can still come through in this giant toothy maw that is the MCU that just churns through filmmakers. Like, I'm like, can he bring that here? Will they let him? Um, but I, yeah, I, I, it has to be evil dead for me. That movie destroyed my brain as a child and it's lived there rent free for most of my life. Can I be an asshole? I mean, you, you, yes. I mean, you, at this point, you don't even have to ask. Can I, can I be an asshole? <laughs> because be what you are. because yeah. this happened to me as I was putting together my list, which was that I would pick a film that I was did sit on. I watched it. There was, there was one film by Matthew Kasovitz called Lahane, uh, which is an absolutely amazing film. It's one of my favorite films. And, and, and I was did sit to talk about it because I was so excited when I saw that film. And then when I went to check the IMDb and somebody else called me out on this, it's not actually their first film. And if you go through uh, Sam Raimi's what? IMDb page. Is it not? Uh, there is a there is a film. Now I haven't seen this, and I cannot verify this, and we can discard this for for certain. But there is a 1977 movie called It's a Murder. Oh, it's, mur it's murder. It's murder, which is directed by Sam Raimi, which may be the forgotten first. Yeah, I don't care. Wow. It's not. I, I'm so care. sorry. I'm so Guess sorry. Guess what? Guess what? Ed <laughs> Cannon is stronger than this shit. I'm not going to even bother. This is my story now. Uh, <laughs> is this the case of like, you got like the Tarantino famous, what was like but the, he the did, half He did film do a film before Reservoir Dogs, but it's like a, uh, it's like a video, it's, it's a straight to TV movie or something like that. And they're similarly like, I think like if you look at Edgar Wright, he Fistful also- Fingers, right? Yeah. Right, which I don't even know if exists in any form. I'm looking at the poster kind of for this, this and it looks area. like a zine. Yeah, it, it, look, I haven't seen it. I also, cannot. also, Shahir, I'm just being an I'm gonna, asshole. No, no, no. Here's what I'm going to do. I know this might work in your world with Christopher Nolan's 73 minute film. This one's only an hour and 10 minutes long. Which, which so which it's is 70, still is short. Which is 73, which is 70 minutes. It's still short. That's what I'm saying. It's still a short. I'm, I'm, I'm just. The Evil it Dead out is there. Sam Raimi's first feature. Thank you very much. I will and not be taking one any that more he questions. He remade essentially with The Evil Dead too, right? Sure. Like, like, well, yeah. But I, Evil Dead 2 is really fun, but like it's not the one that stuck with me. 
Right. Like it's it becomes a bit more slapsticky then. And that's yeah. fine. I like that. Army of Darkness, holy shit, is a good time. But like, no, like it's not for me. And yeah. What's also one of those that like, it's a recurring theme and a couple of ones like like Nolan and and potentially I think the one that I'm eyeing for my third pick of like the of the of the filmmakers that like make the most out of so little yeah. and somehow like like just like, be damned how much the budget is. I'm gonna show you what i can do and it's that is just so inspiring and um uh, just thrilling uh to see when it when it works the, and, it, and it certainly works with evil the Dead. camera in the middle of the board with two people running through the woods i'm like of, of course that fucking works that's brilliant it's the most lo-fi shit and i love it to death anyway i've taken up too much time no 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 i think i think it's a great pick i, I actually rewatched uh dark man uh, at the start of this year and that that comment about um <laughs> doing so much with so little that is a the 15 million dollar movie which features a highway chase scene and it is ostensibly a superhero movie in the era of uh, tim burton's batman mm-hmm. uh but with you know one tenth the budget uh and um and is remarkable i have a lot of affection for for, for dark man i'm glad you brought that yeah. up that has a soft spot yeah i i i remember seeing it and i i just i always felt like it was going to be a movie that if i rewatched i was going to cringe but when i rewatched it i was just like this is incredible <laughs> like i i francis mcdormand yeah, francis Come mcdormand on. liam like, neeson and i just <laughs> like like that thing you say it's um it's so alive in in a genre where i can feel like films feel to a little deaden, but this is like every frame is like vibrating with energy. Uh, it, yeah, it, he's, you know, Sam Raimi's amazing. What are we going to say? All right, you here, number two. I'm going to try and move this quickly because I, 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 there is a design to the three films I've picked and I, I, I and, and it won't be of revealed there in this. Is. It won't be revealed in this. Particular. It's just like a no one film. At the yeah. end, it's circular. It traces back to the beginning. There, You'll there see. is there is there is a design to the films I've chosen. But this the second film is is was one that possibly a lot of people have not seen. Uh, but it's by uh, David Siegel and Scott McGee, who are filmmakers that probably not a lot of people are aware of. But the film is called Suture, which is a 1993 film uh, about uh, two uh, a, a, a young a man who finds out that he has a twin brother and who is brought into that twin brother's criminal undertaking uh, and and uh, a case of uh, mistaken identity. Now the hook of this film, uh, you know, it's sort of got this sort of typical prototypical noir um, uh, uh, texture to it. The hook of this film, 1993 is that the two twin brothers who everyone in the film comments on are so startlingly uh, uh, alike are played by an African-American man and a, and a white actor. And one is Dennis Haysbert. Um, and it, it's got this incredible, uh, like, like that is such a provocative uh, idea to have that in the film. And it's not commented on at all. It is not, uh, it, it is this metatextual thing that it only exists in the world of the audience, not the, fi- not the film itself. And the the film then becomes the sort of like um sounding board for identity in fact in, in the places where it doesn't work is is that uh siegel and mcgee are are films you know you know art students and who have read a lot of freud and there's a lot of explanations about identity and and the transient nature of identity and what means what to what person but at the heart of this is this provocation of two twins being played by two two different actors who do not look anything alike and who ostensibly switch places during the course of this movie and the movie 
becomes kind of like this black and white chessboard. It is like the other films I've talked about, shot in black and white. Um, and uh, I I was introduced to this film uh, at uh, at film school. Uh, my professor Eric Faden at the time at UC Irvine uh, brought this film in, and then brought the filmmakers in, and and I was running projection at the time, so I got to watch it like four times. Once with the filmmakers there, uh, I I got to see it again recently, and I'll and I'll I'll, I'll explain why uh, in terms of this overall design that I have. Um, but uh, it's 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 not a very well uh, seen movie, and these two filmmakers have have not had uh, an enormous career they made a couple of really interesting films there was a film they did called what Maisie saw um with uh i think one of the um who are the swedish uh, sons of uh, Sky, uh the scars gods it's got one of the scars guards in it and okay, okay. <laughs> did they do the deep they did the deep, the deep end with tilda swinton as well that's that a is a good, yeah, 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 that was their like follow-up movie to yeah. this, and it's a, it's a very, very good movie. Um, their movies are great, but they've never had a breakout, I, as far as I can tell. Um, not in the way that, you know, Nolan has, uh, or Sam Raimi, or, or anyone else. I love this movie. I would highly recommend everyone see it. It's got that the quality that we're all kind of talking about, which is that it's so confident, um, so so assured, and has such a provocation in it. Um, there, there was a quote in... Uh, Stephen Lowenstein's book about uh, uh, directors in their first movies, uh, where he talked about uh, directors are never more freer creatively than they are in their first movies, and every director covets that freedom. And this is a film again with such a such a strange idea at the heart of it, told with such confidence that I was just I, I'm always fascinated by this film. I've, I've seen it a dozen times at this point, um, and and I would just highly recommend everyone see it. I know it's not a you know one that we can probably talk too much on if you haven't seen it, uh, but but I would highly Highly recommended. All right. It's funny that 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 that, that quote you say may, makes me think of like the the maybe fitting sequel podcast that you guys should do with or without me at some point, which is the second, the second films. films. Yeah, <laughs> because I think arguably off that quote, I think it's the second film where they have the freedom, yeah. where it's like that's when. Richard Kelly makes Southland titles and like when they really like, you know, they feel their oats and they get the budget and then they're like, okay, now I have the money to make my passion project. And that's kind of sometimes where it gets even more interesting. Yeah, because it can go wrong. Freedom, freedom in these cases doesn't always mean a better product. But, but, but I I think this would be the trajectory, but then the two cases here would be George Lucas with Star Wars as a second movie. Is that, is that correct? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess THX. THX. No, no, American Graffiti. Which one? And then American, American Graffiti. Graffiti. Okay, so I'm wrong there. But the other one was Boogie Nights. Uh, so coming off of uh, yes. Heart Eight, the stories with P.T. Anderson talking about like just the unrelenting, I've made this film. I didn't go the way I wanted to go to. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get everything right now. And he turns into three, you know, a three hour movie about the porn industry in right. the 1970s right. and, <laughs> and makes uh, like a Scorsese and Altman fueled kind of drug fueled nightmare with Burt Reynolds at the center of it. That's that's the second movie. That's what you, that's where you got to go. All right. Uh, I'm going to bring one another filmmaker in here just to talk about their new film. Uh, and this is uh, another wonderful filmmaker by the name of Michelle Saville, who is not related to the first filmmaker of Matt Savile, uh, but is uh, an incredible filmmaker. Her short film, uh, Ellen is Leaving, won South by Southwest uh, several years ago, and uh, I have been eagerly waiting for for whatever she was going to make first. And this is, and uh, oddly, uh, she and I both interned at a... Um, 
at a New York-based production company. Uh, so we were often reading scripts at the same time. And I, I, I feel like the the experience of this movie that she's going to be describing uh, it played into, uh, the experience of working at that, uh, at that company plays into that. But uh, I think we should all um, uh, take a look for Millie Lies Low by Michelle Savlin. Millie Lies Low is about Millie, who's a young New Zealand woman who's moving to New York after winning a prestigious architecture scholarship. After missing her flight and being riddled with with a deep sense of shame and anxiety, she decides she's going to hide out in her hometown of Wellington just for a few days while she scrounges together enough money to buy another ticket to New York, um, all the while pretending to her friends and others that she's already there and having a marvelous time. The idea came about when my short film, Ellen is Leaving, was selected for competition at the Clermont-Ferrand Film Festival in France. I got the departure day mixed up and missed my flight and I felt so stupid. Um, and they told me it was going to cost $3,000 to buy another ticket you know, money I didn't have. So the first thought I had was I'm going to have to hide out for three weeks and pretend that I'm in France. I shared the story with some friends and I could feel the kernel of a character study growing. I love directing the film. It can be a grueling process and at also in pre-production, my appendix burst and I was in hospital for a week, but just it didn't matter. Like there was nothing else I wanted to do right now, but stay on set and keep filming. Of all the ways you worry about how your film might fall over, you never imagine a worldwide pandemic. On day three and a half, I'll never forget our producers stopping the scene we were filming to tell us that it was unsafe to continue and for everyone to pack up as quickly as possible and go home. Um, and it was really scary. We didn't know if we would ever get the film back up. Um, it took about another six months for us to find the finances to be able to lift the film back up on its feet. Even though there is a big push for diversity in directing, it's still incredibly difficult to get a film up. So I was thinking about how it must have been a hundred times harder for those filmmakers who had to push when they were working under more extreme conditions of sexism and patriarchal exclusivity. I was thinking about New Zealand filmmakers like Merita Mita, Dame Gaylene Preston and Dame Jane Campion and how their fight was benefiting me. And and I thank them many times spiritually uh, through the cosmos and in person. And I was always trying to channel their resonance and power throughout the making of the film. So, Millie Lies Low is currently being selected for the Berlin International Film Festival. Uh, it'll have a release date uh, or sales date uh, shortly after that. But if you can find updates for the film, uh, go to Michelle's website, which is uh, michellesavill.com, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-S-A-V-I-L-L.com. She's an amazing filmmaker and uh, one we will definitely be seeing more of nice the only question i have is what part of your body are you willing to sacrifice for your first film the, in the robert rodriguez uh, uh exactly robert rodriguez her appendix. blood or her appendix i've already lost and my appendix and i've got to be honest with you nothing on my body is worth a lot of money 
<laughs> like nobody wants any of this. It's not about the value of the part you're losing. It's about the loss that you'll feel personally that then whatever, exactly. you know, evil uh, hag is going to make this deal with you. Uh, it's about the story for the talk show yeah. circuit at the yeah. end. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing. There, uh, it's not going to happen <laughs> because nobody wants it. Uh, final round, gentlemen. Uh, oh man! What is our final picks for our first films that we were really enamored by? Oh, man, okay, so I'm up first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to be I, if you don't want to. I feel like we put you. Yeah. No, no, no. I will. I, I will. I mean, there. Are, I'll mention a couple different ways that I almost went. Just to mention sure. my, my my. I was thinking. Uh, I mentioned her earlier. Patty Jenkins Monster, yeah. I think, is a fascinating and a great successful film, and also just fascinating given where she's gone in her <laughs> her filmography. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I almost actually went with Barry Sonnenfeld yep, for diner. the Adams family. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, was was was? Oh, I'm thinking of Barry Levinson for one. And was Adams oh, family Sonnenfeld's first film? It was after a very illustrious as career, of course, as a DP yeah. on Coen Brothers and many other films. Um, but I, I feel like I need to give proper. Um, I don't know. I need. I, de- I need to give some love to one of the great audacious filmmaking debuts of my lifetime um again fits in with a lot of what we've been talking about making the most of what you've got and just seeing it all pour out on the screen um darren aronofsky's pie in 1998 um made for i think about sixty thousand bucks um it's a fever dream like many of his films are um hard to decipher and it that's almost not besides the point you are just like caught up in the passion uh, of both the filmmaker and the protagonist i mean it's it's a thriller about math and obsession <laughs> and it somehow works and anybody that saw that film um or sees that film today sees just like um just so much talent seeping from every every frame of that film and here's a case where thankfully um it was clearly uh justified it, it has borne out um he's got one of the most uh thrilling uh filmographies to date oh you know some missteps arguably but like all, uh, by and large he's for my money one of the one of the greats and um pie is just a fascinating piece of can work I, that uh, can i ask which which one you consider a misstep i'm curious it's got to be the final, um, right? No, no, I actually don't consider the fountain a misstep. I, I I love the okay. fountain. I I would go Noah. Okay, as, okay. Yeah. As, I'd go as, Noah the, as, well. as the biggest misstep huh. for me. I, yeah. Um, I want to revisit Mother. Yeah. I think Mother. I need to give it a second. Mother is one of my to. top ten films ever. <laughs> wow. I okay. okay love Mother. I own it on Blu-ray. I've <laughs> seen it probably easily twenty times. It is a. You know what's weird? Shahir, you're saying uh, your comfort movie was Zodiac. I think my comfort movie is Mother. <laughs> wow. Uh, or one so, of them anyway. So anytime uh, you think that amazing. I'm a weirdo for saying Zodiac, I, I look, let's just put Mother on the table. Mother's dope is- As fun. long as Requiem is not your comfort <laughs> no. movie. Requiem is- oh, uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I, no but, but Black Swan, The Wrestler, those two yep. over, I, were at, at or near the top of my- uh, top tens those years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he again has a free pass, and I don't I, I don't necessarily think he's. I mean, his next film I'm fascinated by the, is the, the Whale, Whale with yeah. Brendan Fraser. Yeah, um, yeah he, again, lifetime pass. This guy just has so much talent seeping out of him, and it's all there. It's all there in pie for no money and just made with no name actors. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my fun story about pie is that um, it's delicious. I, 
It's delicious. <laughs> I eat too much of it. Um, but I was, uh, before uh, uh, enrolling in film school, I was uh, studying to be an architect. And uh, as part of studying to be an architect, you have to do a lot of physics and a lot of calculus or a lot of math. Uh, and so I would take, uh, I was taking an advanced math class uh, in calculus. And the professor there was probably one of the most influential people in my lives, which was that all they talked about in, in regard to high-level calculus and high-level mathematics was the arts. And so they introduced me to Gabriel Garcia Marquez through, you know, like talking about mathematics and his work. And he took all of us to go see Pi at the film festival, which was playing. Um, uh, and and, and he, he was just like, I don't, I don't know anything about this, but it's a movie about math so let's go watch it and i subsequently uh left my <laughs> left the class and and enrolled in film school because of that movie um wow. it's it's it, because it has all the qualities that we're kind of talking about which is that you watch it and you see someone uh making such a unique vision under such tough circumstances and and there is no compromise to it and and it is uniquely theirs and aronofsky is someone like requiem for a dream is a movie i've only seen the one time because I'm terrified to revisit it. Um, but I own it and I own the soundtrack and I will listen to it and I will, you know, like I will eventually watch that movie again, but I just don't know when. <laughs> and, uh, um, it's funny to say that is the one that I always say the same yeah. way. It's like, it's like, I, I, I don't know. If, I, I agree. I don't think I've ever seen it again. And I don't know if I ever will because it's just so, but I, I, I know it's a work, it's of, a work of genius, a masterwork. Right. It, it's, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and, and then I love the reinvention. So, you know, the, the frame story with him is the fountain kind of being a difficult film to get up, yes. uh, eventually made. And, and that, that's the one for me that works the least. I actually, I, I, despite being a non-religious person and, and I don't think Noah is a religious film, that film kind of, comes together for me in a way that I didn't expect it to, but the reinvention to, um, to the wrestler and black swan from, you know, the kind of mathematical work that he was doing to something much more humanistic. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think that's a quality that a lot of these filmmakers have is the ability to reinvent themselves and, and feel like yes. they're making the first movie again. Well, and some of them mm -hmm. don't too. I mean, we've talked about people that have had tough times doing mm -hmm. it. Even the ones that we love and revere, like uh, you know uh, Burton and 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 Raimi, mm -hmm. to be argued. And I think that that separates Aronofsky from the pack. You're absolutely right. I think he he goes and goes strips it all down and makes these like intimate character studies. Still has the filmmaking chops and the bells and whistles at his disposal, but like shows that he's also just like thematically deep and fascinating as a filmmaker, as, just as much as he is a technical uh, genius. What my, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite things to do is to sit down with someone who hasn't watched Mother and then watch <laughs> them watch Mother and then just see what the first words out of their mouth is and where the conversation goes when we're done watching Mother. <laughs> I have done this three times. Uh, and it has been a delight every time. <laughs> what Matt, what is your what is your pick? Ah! My pick, uh, you know, we were going old school. We were going back to when we were kids. Uh, and I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, I'm going to do something that uh, I, I don't know if it bucks the trend, but it's at a different time period, obviously, uh, in my life and, and, and chronologically, though time is an illusion, but that's beside the point. Um, my third movie is the film, I think, in my opinion, re- did not reinvent, but definitely reinvigorated uh, the horror genre in a mainstream way. Mm. Uh, and that, of course, is Get Out, uh, directed by Jordan Peele. Mm. Um, yeah. This is obviously an earlier directorial 
moment than a lot of the filmmakers that we're talking about. But I feel like we're in like we're in a really special time right now with Jordan Peele. Like I can't think of any other entertainment celebrity (laughs) that has so aptly skillfully and this is through through skill and craft not like a a a calculated sort of thing has reinvented themselves like in in the public eye and in my mind like i love key and peel he's a brilliant comedian and actor but not everyone who's a brilliant comedian and actor can do what he did with get out and do what he did in us and i'm very much looking forward to nope um he he like again horror never went anywhere horror's been around and it's not going anywhere like it's not like it took one person to, to sort of save it but horror got back into non-horror discussion circles when get out came out and it has kind of stuck because he's been involved doing sort of executive producing and a couple other things all across a lot of different horror pl- like platform i think he, he had uh he was involved with the although i didn't see it the twilight zone remake yeah, whether yeah. you know etc yeah. yeah so like it's just it's just a sort of fascinating like entry point like we're at the very beginning of a transitional period that I would have never sort of seen coming and I love that it is um also fun fact the first credited thing I could find for Jordan Peele on IMDb is in fact in Weird Al's music video White and Nerdy which brings us right back to UHF <laughs> so um, there is a grand design to your that is my well. grand yeah. design yeah yeah <laughs> you're welcome internet no I, I love I love so much Get Out and um you can see you know what it is with Get Out this is where I'll sort of leave it with that you can you see an intense drive and passion for storytelling that feels to me like it had been pent up and not able to like actually like do something like he you, you, you of course you're telling a story when you're acting and you're doing comedy of course but this is different and like this was like felt like a ton of energy kept inside of him for so long and this movie is just like ah! and like it's 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 so beautiful to see i love that film well it feels like the difference between like we're talking about like a lot of these like first time filmmakers were 25 or 28 and like just out of film school and scraping the mm-hmm. 60,000 or 100,000 bucks together. And there's this rawness, as much as there's a shorthand, there's a rawness to it. I wouldn't say Get Out's not a raw no, movie. No. It's actually a very like composed movie. And I think you're right. I think it's because he'd been stewing on this, whether it's this specific story or just like wanting to do film, yeah. wanting to direct his own film for a long, long time. And so you have this kind of first film that feels anything but a first yeah. film. It feels like someone in their prime mm-hmm. right out of the gate. There's, yeah. there's two things I love about Get Out. One is that it feels like a writer's movie first. Um, it's a really it's a really well-crafted uh, scre- screenplay. You know, from the ground up, every moment is is set up and pays off perfectly. It's it's a real it's a real testament to like his ability as a writer. Um, the second thing is I, the the quality about him that I think really works. Other than he is easily, uh, uh, clearly someone with a great cinematic mind, um, but he's also someone who's very somehow tapped in, 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 the, in the same way I think uh, Fincher is, and the same way that I think uh, Stanley Kubrick was, is tapped into what the zeitgeist is, or what will poke buttons, uh, what will poke uh, the public and prod the public in sort of really interesting ways. Uh, he's, he's just so in touch. And, and you know, I, I think Us is a film that 
mostly works, you know, kind of there's parts of it that don't quite work for me, but, but I still think the provocation of us is, is, is the mark of someone who understands how the audience works. And I think you saw that in, in, um, in the key and peel sketch as well, because the, you know, the comedy sketch uh, and Josh, you know, this is better than anyone is really about reading the audience in the right way and setting them up for the gag in the right way. And it's a really difficult thing to do well. Um, so I, 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 you know, I think he's going to have, I think, you know, it's, it's sort of foolish to say now, but Jordan Peele is going to be a significant uh, figure in the American cinema landscape. I think he's going to go places. Yeah, I think the, the kid's got a future. <laughs> All right, Shear, take us home. Uh, the the kid who has a future in uh, my final pick uh, is uh, someone we talked about and I teed up at the beginning and someone who I want to talk about um, very specifically after we hear from our last filmmaker. Uh, but this is Steven Soderbergh and his film Six Lies and Videotape, uh, which uh, premiered at Sundance Film Festival in 1989. And I... I think for people who haven't seen um, Six Lies and Videotape, the 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 level of fervor that, with which this film came out is hard to explain to people because if you watch Six Lies and Videotape now, it is every American indie. And and when I rewatched it, I was like, there was this sense of like, I don't know if you've ever gone back to uh, a house or a building that you you know like you were there when you were a kid and it was like this enormous like monolith and it and felt like bigger than life. And then when you revisit it as an adult, you're like, oh, this wasn't as big as I remember it. Sure. Uh, Six Lies and Videotape was that for me, which is that it's still brilliant and amazing, but it's remarkable to me how small it is and how intimate yeah. it is and how um, how uh, there's, a, there's a quote that Soderbergh has, uh, and I can't remember which interview, I think it was with IndieWire, where he talks about every big event or every huge movie can be traced to two people talking in a room and 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 that's and he says the reason why he doesn't do huge you know spectacles is that he thinks that's the thing that he's most interested in is two people in a room and that is never better uh, on display than this film the interesting thing about this and and we talked about it before is that you know uh he he was the youngest person to win at Cannes, um sort of controversially uh winning the palm door over spike lee for do the right thing uh which is a film that has probably lived in the in the public consciousness in a in a bigger way than six lies and videotape people will. Um, but, but he gets propelled into this, into this sort of, um, world, uh, where he is, um, you know, the, 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 the poster child for filmmaking. And, um, uh, I, I believe it was Lim Dobbs who talked about it, uh, who's a writer, uh, I, he, he, who talked about Khans, who was a, he was a critic then. He says, I don't ever remember seeing such a claim for, that a, for a first film as he got. And he suspects one of the reasons may be in the dearth of serious new filmmakers of the 80s used to get new waves of talent, whereas the new, uh, the French New Wave or the, uh, the young Bogdanovich, Scorsese and Coppola all at once in the 70s. Uh, now, when Soderbergh came along, there hadn't been that kind of wave, that collective wave. So Soderbergh sort of wrote it on his own and Steven Soderbergh was a one-man wave that everyone went disproportionately crazy for um and I still watch it and think that this is a remarkably assured film a piece of filmmaking as such uh like like Matt you were saying with Jordan Peele one that taps into this odd zeitgeist at the time I think Rob Lowe uh prior to that movie had had recently been discovered of of making six tapes with a with a with a mini camcorder and and this film kind of uh Soderbergh in one of the commentaries talks about the fact that Rob Lowe was in the audience during one of the one of his early screenings and and felt like 
like it might have been about him. Uh, there was this early day of videotape and people weren't sure how the medium actually worked and he kind of taps into uh, the way that mediums work with something that has like a great salacious title that definitely sells and the Weinsteins, uh, you know, saw it and, and, and understood that. Um, the his career is is one I find endlessly fascinating, and and I and I want to again, I'm teeing something very specific up here, but um, but uh, I. I I think every film he's made is almost it's where most filmmakers reinvent themselves every few years. It feels like Soderbergh reinvents himself with every film. Um, you know? Yeah. He, he's, he's like the ultimate, like restless, curious filmmaker. And it's just endlessly exciting. I look, if I was doing a percentage of the films that he's done that I love, yeah, of course. like I, it's I agree actually with you. like, yeah. like I, it's a very scattershot yeah. actually. If you look at his filmography for me, there's like not, there's, there's a lot that I don't yeah. love in there, but he keeps going. And he's just uh, ironic for a guy that like announced his retirement. <laughs> like, and then like, made one of the know, greatest television shows of all time. <laughs> right. Um, but like in every facet of the way he approaches making films, He's restless, whether it's the form, whether it's the marketing, whether it's the genre, nothing is sacred to him. He's just, he's a storyteller and and a curious storyteller. He was at 25 and he is at 55. And um, that is so rare and so prolific. It's just, he just stands apart from the pack in so many unique ways that he is, yeah, I think for any cinephile, he's like one of those guys that's just like, how does he do it? Yeah. Like, how does that, like you said at the outset, how does that brain even work? He's just like an enigma. He's the, he's um, the person and, that I forget yeah. did the most films that I liked out of a filmography. <laughs> like I, you know, like they, they just don't like, you're right. It's a, he's a chameleon. There's no sort of, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of craft here and there, but it's so subtle that I don't catch it often. I mean, you got air. I mean, the ones that I gravitate towards sort of going in order down the list is sort of like, uh, Aaron Brockovich, all of the oceans, 13, mm. eh, whatever, but that's fine. But then like, also obviously there's contagion magic, Mike, <laughs> uh, behind the candelabra, Logan lucky, which is super fun. Um, the, I did not see the laundromat. I loved no sudden move. Mm. Um, would anyone, I, did anyone see the laundromat? I wanted to see the laundromat. I, I saw the laundromat. It's, it's one of his sort of interesting experiments. Okay. Like there's a bunch of films that he makes that are, ex, you know, kind of experiments. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny. Cause I feel like if you talk to like 10 different folks like us, we could each side, like, I like unsane. Yeah, I love which I don't know if yeah. I don't, Right. Like, I mean, like, but like he has like things that like, that maybe we haven't seen like the, that we missed because he like makes three films a year. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them are shot on an iPhone and were released just on like six screens. And some of them get released on 3000 screens and it doesn't, it, he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's just, it's super he just makes, he, he's stuff. not precious. Yeah. About it. Like, like uh, the one that I always love that uh, very few people saw, but was the girlfriend experience. Like I was like genuinely taken by how, astute that was about the 2008 financial crash for again a salacious kind of topic with uh, a porn star at the at the uh, at the center of it but but like one that was really prescient about what was the problems in 2008 he's a, and you know like you've talked to him on numerous occasions or twice in the last year or so uh he's also funny like ridiculously funny and his movies are ridiculously sexy you know for this sort of like uh seemingly somewhat introverted kind of looking guy uh his films are like the coolest things you'll ever see you know like george clooney has never looked better than he did in out of sight right you know um yeah it's funny he's like yeah and he he dipped his toe into kind of franchise 
filmmaking with the Oceans movies, and that, I have a feeling that might be the only time he ever does. But he proved that he, could, if he wanted to, he could do it yeah. that way. And he's just like, yeah, but it's not for yeah. me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to making Kimi, yeah, like, Kimi, Kimi, which, which, new, the, which uh, the trailer just dropped, and it, that's like another film that he probably made for three million dollars in three weeks with an iPhone and um, a High Flying Bird, which was like again a film where it was like the, it just dropped on Netflix, and you're like, okay, I'll just check this out, and it was like. I, I don't think this 100% works, but it's also like, I love that he made this and I, I will watch the shit out of this. And by the way, I know we're all gushing like crazy, but he's just so fascinating. Like also re-editing his oh old movies. God. Like yeah. he's like re-editing like Kafka yeah. and like coming out like the new cuts of like his old movies. It just goes, yeah, I want to just see like what I can do with my 25-year-old movie. And, and also, <laughs> like, uh, he, doesn't he famously have a recut of Raiders of the Lost Ark that he's been working on, like a black yeah. and white recut of Raiders of the Black and white, yeah. 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 Because he, he th- th- this is the thing about, like, I don't understand how he works, which is that famously on films, he's also, he's shooting under the name Peter Andrews and he's editing the film. And I think they're his mother and father's last names or something along those lines. But the famously, if you work on a Soderbergh film, uh, on the last day of shoot, you'll probably find him in the corner of the bar with the first cut of the movie. Uh, uh, already done. Yeah, I talked to I talked to David Harbor yeah. pretty soon after he shot No Sudden Move, Move, and he told me that story that basically as like, he was leaving set, like Soderbergh was like, uh, "You want to movie?" <laughs> like, and, and Harbor's like, "No, I want to get out of here." What are you talking? Like, you have a movie, movie already? Yeah, what? Yeah. And 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 <laughs> I bet you it's probably a better cut than most editors will ever will ever make. You, right. you know, like uh, Robert Rodriguez rightly kind of gets called into that sort of that that uh, that amazing quality of like do anything kind of filmmaker who knows every part of the craft. James Cameron is like that as well. But Soderbergh, you know, like I think for the last 10 to 15 years, has been shooting his own movies since I think it was Shay or he might have started on Oceans, mm-hmm. uh, started shooting some of the scenes in Oceans. Uh, and again, the volume of work and the volume, you know, I, you're right. Uh, Josh, which is that the hit ratio can be a bit mixed, but I will take uh, Alyssa Soderbergh any day yeah. of the week. You know, like I, I'll, yeah. any day of the week, uh, you could put on uh, Bubble, and I will. I'm, I'm there. <laughs> Whether or not they hit the amount of ammunition the man could crank out is just impressive as hell. Like, and I it's... will go down fighting on this one. Ocean's Twelve is the best of the franchise. Uh, you're not alone yeah. in that. I know there's 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 that contingent out there. I don't know if I agree. <laughs> yeah. but, uh... All right, last filmmaker because I want I do want to come back to Soderbergh just for a second just to wrap this all out. Uh, but the last filmmaker is a guy I've known for a very long time, a guy by the name of Sam Kelly, uh, who is a terrific filmmaker. Uh, oh, and where's he from? Uh, he's from uh, a little Antipodean country. Uh, you might have heard of it called New Zealand. Oh, okay, uh, has, cool, 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 uh, cool. Filmmakers like Taika Waititi and Peter Jackson and Jane Campion. Here's a new one, Sam Kelly. Uh, his first film uh, is called. Savages, and I have watched this because it is available streaming right now on uh, iTunes and Apple TV. It is a tremendous first film. Uh, I think uh, if you know New Zealand cinema in any way, echoes of uh, Lee Tamahori's film uh, Once Were Warriors is certainly in there. Um, but I want to let Sam uh, explain the movie because he's such a, uh, a wonderful filmmaker and a wonderful um, person to listen to. Put it down. None of us are angels. Probably the opposite. We wouldn't be gangsters if we always did what we were told. Why do you wear that mask? So you can see who I am. 
Kia ora. Hello to the only podcast about movies. Uh, I'm Sam Kelly. I wrote and directed Savage, which is uh, set in the world of New Zealand's street gangs. It's the story of Danny, who at three different points in his life is pushed and pulled between his family and the gang. But really, it's, it's a story about a search for connection and belonging. Short films prepared me pretty well for making a feature film. It's all the same processes, just bigger, uh, more moving parts. So... It's harder to control everything in the time you've got. It was important to me that the gang members felt authentic. I wanted to cast from that community as much as I could. So we put a casting call out on Facebook and we said people with broken teeth and tattoos, scars, criminal records are welcome. And we had 6,000 applications. So me and the casting director traveled across the country doing a couple of thousand auditions and we found some incredible talent for our cast. Why didn't you come back? Mum searched for you for ages. If you knew me, you just wouldn't want me. Mum doesn't want to see you. Why would she? Hmm? You're just like the old man. I've noticed a bit of a pattern with the filmmakers that I look up to. Often they're striving for a natural authenticity while finding this bold cinematic form like Steve McQueen or Aronofsky or Jonathan Glazer. I'm really attracted to that idea of the contrast of a more poetic constructed world that's anchored by these edgy raw performances. So now I'm writing my next film. It's a neo-noir fairy tale which is set in Wellington, New Zealand and uh, it explores a narcissistic mother and her daughter who wants to escape. It all takes place on the night of Christmas Eve as their stories collide with others. Thanks, Shahir, for sharing Savage with your community. Uh, I think you can watch it on iTunes over there. Um, so I hope you dig it. And I would highly recommend everyone watch the film. It is it is fantastic. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging movie, but one with like a, a huge heart uh, and one that I would highly recommend to everyone. Uh, Josh, I was listening to uh, your episode with Guillermo del Toro today, and this it, I had forgotten this story, but there was something that Guillermo del Toro said in your uh, in your conversation with him, where he talked about mentoring other filmmakers. And famously, I think Guillermo, uh, I'm on a first name basis with him now, um, <laughs> um, was mentored by James Cameron when he first came to Hollywood, who took him in and 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 you know like always uh, championed him and 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 helped him with his with his first works, and an interesting story about Sam that I'd completely forgotten until I listened to that episode was that uh, Sam was trying to get a film made in New Zealand about, actually it was over 10 years ago, um, and Guillermo was in New Zealand uh, working on The Hobbit at the time with Peter Jackson, uh, and uh, uh, Sam, who hadn't made any work before, with the producer that hadn't made any work, somehow got word to Guillermo that they were fundraising for a feature film, and Guillermo, uh, they talked to him, and Guillermo was like, look, whenever whatever you need from me, I will gladly help with, and uh, arranged to do like a fundraiser for Sam and his first film, and you know, to have have Guillermo del Toro basically uh, hold an event in Wellington uh, Central in one of the theaters there uh, for a young filmmaker and and you know like someone I don't think he you know he barely knew but was like look you want to make your first film I'm I'm here to help you with that and 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 did that film didn't actually happen but then you know like I think again having someone like Guillermo del Toro in your corner um, and then eventually going off and making you know there was no way that Sam wasn't going to make his first film after having that kind of support um, so that crystallized Amazing. me and. And yeah. and that was the reason why I picked the three films that I picked, 
because um, I, I think so much of a first film is reliant upon the people around the filmmaker and, and the support that they get. It, it, you know, we, we talked uh, exclusively kind of now about the directors and the struggles that they went through and the little bit of money that they had. But the three films I picked specifically all had one common thread. Um, and that was, oddly, Steven Soderbergh, um, which is the famous story of Christopher Nolan uh, is that Soderbergh saw following at an early screening, was very impressed by it, and then got a call at some point. Uh, I, I think he also saw a rough cut of Memento at some point, and then uh, got a call uh, from a producer who said that Nolan was interested in doing insomnia, but couldn't get a meeting at Warner Brothers. And to Soderbergh, this was absurd. You know, like he was so excited by uh, by Nolan. So he made the calls in order to get Nolan in the room uh, and to make sure and eventually became a producer on insomnia because he was so excited by that filmmaker. The same story happened with Suture, which is that um, Soderbergh saw an early cut of Suture uh, and was so impressed by it that, again, he called the distribution companies and told them about it and and tried to and ensure that the film got a buyer. Uh, he would attend screenings in LA wearing a suture t-shirt, uh, apparently, in order to promote this little known movie that everyone saw. And, and the screening I went to at the Metrograph was presented by Soderbergh, uh, recapping that film. I think he's he's been a champion of that film the entire time. And then Matt, um, this was one that it looks like you, is, uh, is that uh, uh, probably one of the 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 two or three of your favorite movies in the last 10 years, uh, Captain America and the Endgame series wouldn't have happened had it not been for Soderbergh's intervention, which is that Anthony and Joe Russo uh, really wanted to get a meeting with Kevin Feige uh, and and leaned upon Soderbergh to do it. Yeah. Uh, I recall an early article that someone shared with me about Soderbergh where they talked about the fact that <laughs> uh, some of his friends had to sort of perform an intervention because he was giving away, I, I don't know if he was giving away money, but he was supporting so many filmmakers at once and so many like, like off-kilter films filmmakers i think godfrey reggio was someone you know the, the kanakaskatsi filmmaker he was like really into as well so i i just there was this thing that i kind of really latched onto here which is that uh and it was something that guillermo said in your in your episode which is that sometimes you need a cheerleader and soderbergh yeah. is a person who has gone through that success and never wavered in being a cheerleader for other people um so well, they know that they know the struggle. I love that. I mean, like, yeah, and like I mentioned in my conversational Guillermo, something I stumbled onto when I was just looking at the IMDb. Look at IMDb, the IMDb for yeah. Guillermo del Toro. In addition to the directing, producing, and writing credits, he under the thank yous, yeah. there are like eighty-seven movies that have thanked Guillermo del Toro. We only know like six of those stories, mm -hmm. but there are dozens, like the ones you just told about Soderbergh, yep. that are out there, and I'm sure there are dozens more about Soderbergh that we don't know about. And it's because they know the struggle is real and that they um, I mean like I always love also like Soderbergh look at Soderbergh's IMDB outside of yeah. thanks he's done like second unit on, on movies like, yeah. on like Hunger Games just because Gary Ross needed some help for a few days like what <laughs> it's <laughs> like, amazing it's amazing and, and like I think I think the other reason is that you know like uh, when I think about the the struggle of making your first film, I think about the humiliation of it is, which is that you you're putting so much of yourself out there without the kind of um, sense of like there's a track record to kind of support it. So like, and we've all seen people's first films and being like, oh geez, I don't know. And and so, but but to 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 that point, I think there's a sort of sense that like as critics and as people who watch film and who get excited by it, I, I do kind of, I, maybe it's a sort of vow for 2022 is to reset the thinking a little bit and just, and just cognizantly, I'm, I know we're all aware of it, but like a, a first film in particular, but every film, there's a lot more on the line for the filmmaker than there is for the viewer. And, oh, and yeah. you know, like there's just this kind of like, 
a respect that has to come with that, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that was my, that was my grand design for this whole thing was to, well, it was all well, about Steven well. Soderbergh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did, he did the most work. He, he did the assignment and the, well, I also <laughs> set the assignment. Yeah. He, yeah. He set the assignment. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, I we've kept you for a very long time, but I I thank you uh, so much for humoring us for this conversation. Um, this is a blast. I would have had to be having the same conversation just talking to myself for the last few <laughs> hours. So it's good to be validated with other human beings that pretend to care. So um, thank you, guys. No, this thank was a blast. you. Honestly. Much Josh, appreciated. When uh, I mean, it's 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 hard not to see you on the internet. Uh, you could throw a stone and find some uh, Josh Horowitz related project. Uh, yeah, I recommend just doing the block, the filter block on Twitter. Et <laughs> where where can people name. find your work uh, if they if they uh, do live under a rock and and don't know how to use the internet? Um, well, yeah, the best places, I mean, like, look, it sounds silly to say, follow me on social media, but all my, that's the easiest place to find me, Joshua Horowitz on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and yeah, my stuff pops up on MTV News' YouTube page and Comedy Central's YouTube page. And um, certainly, like I said, my pride and joy, my little baby, seven-year-old, uh, it's no longer a baby, happy, sad, confused, my own podcast, uh, subscribe to it, give it a try. Probably your favorite filmmaker or actor has uh, by now perhaps appeared on it or will be soon. So, uh, yeah. Is there anything uh, coming up that you're kind of really excited about in terms of, in terms of the podcast or or anything else? Yeah. When is this dropping? This This will be Sunday. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll give you guys a, a little uh, a little exclusive uh, thing. Um, by the time this goes out, momentarily, very soon after, um, I'm having a conversation. Speaking of the Marvel, the MCU. If you want an exclusive extended conversation with Andrew Garfield, nice, um, yes, talking only about <laughs> spoiler alert, Spider Man. <laughs> He's one of the Spider. Man. Confused. Look, if you he is one of the Spider. He is one of the Spider. Man. But like, uh, I'm obsessed with Andrew Garfield. I think the first film I saw him in, which was Boy A, which is a shame, yeah. like shamefully, it's very difficult to find a Blu-ray of. Um, but you were at the center of an Andrew Garfield. Like, I wouldn't say controversy, <laughs> but like, he, I have not watched the Spider Verse, uh, the Spider Man. I, I, you know, like, I'm I am neutral on the Spider universe but uh garfield famously on your podcast said he was no not part of the of the no way homes yeah back back in may he was promoting a very little seen movie called mainstream at the time which we did on this we did on on the podcast yeah yeah okay okay, cool cool um and i brought up spider the rumors were flying that he was in it at the time if you look at the clip, the clip is just funny because I didn't even like ask him if he was in it. <laughs> I just brought up like so. I literally my I think my my line is like I don't even know how to talk about the Spider Man film without ruining anything, and he just interrupts me like halfway <laughs> through and goes into the most vociferous like really enthusiastic denial you've ever seen from somebody that yeah became um, uh, memed and analyzed and joked about for months on end. And now if you've seen Spider-Man, you probably know why it's, <laughs> I gotta, uh, it's I gotta say, all that more humorous. With no spoilers. Uh, uh, <laughs> I have not seen it. Yeah. Well, the, there's moments he, I've never seen an actor. How do I do this without spoiling it? <laughs> I think it's impossible, probably. Just, there's, there's a, there's, I've never seen acts of redemption across story, platform, 
<laughs> film studio <laughs> like it, it, the, the, the 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 redemption plates he is spinning i just i <laughs> was i loved it so much so uh you know let him know tell tell him you know I will. a z-lister I'm, I'm, I'm from chatting. the internet says hello uh no you were not a z-lister <laughs> and i will yes i probably jinxed it i'm chatting with him tomorrow and i will convey your please your do love please of do his rede- of his redemption spin. Boy um, a fan club. all i'm saying is boy a fan club over here uh, <laughs> oh the man is amazing he's you know he's, he's an amazing yeah actor he's, and, he yes, truly uh, is great. Yeah. shahir uh, when yeah. you are not roping in uh uh your more famous friend into a two-hour conversation that is literally just a trap for you to talk about <laughs> connections with Steven Soderbergh, it's where can folks that. find you? It's all about Soderbergh. My, I should be running the Steven Soderbergh fan club. In fact, I'm. I, you guys might not know this, but I'm behind what is his list that he puts out of the year. I'm the one who put Panic Room on it five times. <laughs> no, you can see uh, anything of my work at my website, www.shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, I noticed a certain theme through your work, which is all horror related. Where can people find you spinning up the chainsaw to your dark cabins. Oh, wow. Well, uh, you can find me uh, always... Hopefully being the last girl at my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram or uh, Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we are doing on the YouTube side of things over at Extra Credits. I believe by the time this drops, we have a great uh, episode, a uh, game design episode on why haggling and shopping in video games is kind of garbage and ways that like design can make that better. And we will have just done our one off on the Zimmerman telegram, which I don't know if either of you are history buffs to, to know that, but it's a fascinating story ab- uh, about how uh, Europe finally got for one way or the other, the, the U.S. to get into World War Two by spying on some of their friends that they shouldn't have been spoiler alert so it's a fascinating look at that sort of thing and like the telegraphed weirdness of like everyone knew what was going on but we're going to release this here as the it's it's beautiful political theater uh and it's very very interesting um next week what are we doing next week uh we are going to be doing another first film uh, which is going to be Maggie Gyllenhaal's The, La- the Lost Daughter. That's uh, right. With a special guest, uh, who, a special returning guest, uh, which I will, will, will talk about in the, we- in the week to come. We're very excited about that. Uh, have you seen The Lost Daughter or uh, Josh? I yeah. have. A, a great yeah, film. I haven't very been impressive. more stressed yeah, yeah. about a doll since uh, David Fincher's The Game <laughs> uh, than I was in, in Maggie Gyllenhaal's uh, film. Uh, again, Josh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we appreciate it uh, yeah. immensely. And, uh, Anytime. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Talk to you later, everybody. Bye.